Um, I will pass it to Michelle whenever you want to start the podcast and then it's it's time, baby. Yeah, okay. Sounds cool. My name is Michelle Perez. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my buddy Jake, my buddy Ruben, and my buddy Eliza. And uh, this is Working On It. This is a podcast about work, self-employed people, and a lot of jobs to fall in between, as well as a lot of actions to fall in between. Uh, today, I kind of wanted to lighten up a sort of ask a few of you uh, what you've kind of been doing in between uh, working on stuff. Personally, I want to open with uh, not shilling for something, but because we kind of had a slightly spirited discussion of it elsewhere, I've really been enjoying the animated program Invincible. Uh, Obviously, people have mixed feelings on it, I uh, I enjoy it a lot. I don't feel like uh, that psychotic fandom brain, but because I did group watches of it with friends and uh, it involved insane amounts of violence that we were all cheering for, like, uh, like baying animals, uh, it was nice for me. Uh, what have y'all been up to? Oh, yeah. No, I mean... To be clear, uh, me and you have been part of those group watches. The Invincible show is is fun. Um, I don't have a ton to say about it other than I start, you know, I'm someone who read the comic when it came out and kind of bailed on it about halfway through its run. Didn't really care to finish it. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of, it was, it's superhero Dragon Ball. But the, the, the animated version of it is just fun because, as you said, group watching things, very fun. And then to see the violence of the book brought to animation is... Yeah. You know, they they spent their budget right. A lot of the show looks cheap, but the violent parts do not look cheap. So that's cool. Um, and yeah, other than that, I'm actually preparing to get back to working. I've been unemployed for a while. I got back into school. I'm going to have to start that hustle pretty soon in the summer. And uh, I've been enjoying very much not having to do a lot until then. Nice with it. Yeah, uh, other, other than making this podcast. No, I've, um, I've just been... I just came back from camping uh, this weekend, so a lot of other stuff. Um, I spun up a few of my of my local friend groups. I'm trying to convert a lot of them to doing poker nights with me, so I'm teaching them uh, different Oof. formats of card games. Uh, specifically, we're doing dealer's choice nights, which is where uh, every time you do a game or every time you do a round of games, a dealer switches, give the deck off, and then someone calls a new card game. But I'm trying to spin it into you can bet on any card game and not poker. And literally anything on cards. Someone wants to do bingo. Uh, we're trying to work that in. Um, other than that, I just went camp- uh, went camping. That was pretty relaxing. Um, did some nice food primp and made a stir fry and a walk. Ooh. Uh, which is pretty fun. Um, getting all that stuff to work together. All right. Pretty nice with it. Uh, I've never cooked in a walk. Uh, Eliza, how, how's it been going? How's it hanging? Uh, same. Cooking in walks. I have one. Ooh, they're very large. 
I no, mean, no. Smaller well, ones too. they come in all different sizes. <laughs> They're relative. It's a relative situation, Michelle. Yeah, I can't just say every walk is long. Oh man, yeah, Michelle, you fucked up. Cooking in big walks is the best. I used to cook. I used to work a kitchen job where I literally we had walk fires, like it, like instant, like a uh, industrial walk fires installed. It was, it was awesome. Very nice. Oh, yeah, oh it was so good. All right, biggest walks. Uh, on that come from note, all walks of life. Mm. Oh fuck, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> no. All right, folks. That's no. it. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Yeah, this, Thanks this, for listening. This, it's been a great. It's been a great episode. Great episode of working on it. Fantastic. Uh, we're we're today joined by a longtime friend of all of ours, uh, an absolutely central figure. I think in the last five years of my life, without a doubt, a wonderful friend, incredibly talented artist, uh, Francine Bridge. You may know her as Witness the Absurd. Uh, she's a digital artist. Uh, Living, living in the UK, uh, she's she's multifaceted, multi-talented, uh, has so many different disciplines. She does, and we kind of wanted to ask her, you know, about her career as of late, and you know, talk to her about process and all that good stuff. Uh, welcome, Francine. How's it going? Uh, it's it's going really well. Uh, I feel a little oversold, but uh, other than that, uh, I'm extremely excited to be here uh, and also very flattered to be described as a longtime friend of everyone here. Uh, I've been very uh, like very happy to know all of you uh, to greater or lesser degrees over the, the last five years, certainly. Uh, and um, yeah, no, I, I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's interesting. It's been a long time since I was on a podcast. Uh, I did periodic guest spots on a podcast that some friends of mine ran called video game hell uh but outside of that uh i have i've not really done much in the way of uh, audio stuff so i don't even run a voice track when i stream work uh so this this is my this is probably going to be my official voice reveal for a lot of people uh following me when i link this or Ooh, another, whatever. another sclusi in the bag for working on it podcast so many exclusives. So some of the first instances in which I had seen your art uh, were introduced to me by a friend uh, named Rachel. Uh, we kind of we kind of circulated a lot of the same stuff on Tumblr and knew some of the same people from there. Uh, and retroactively, she would show us stuff from the uh, boards we used to go at. Uh, your work was very, uh, very pencils heavy not not as uh color rich as you've come to be defined uh, in in your your sort of later works uh and your 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 development as a as a colorist and a fully rounded complete artist is just been an amazing progression to watch but i i remember like a lot of the distinct hard lines and very uh very wild sort of grimacing creatures in your work, like stood out to me and uh, stood out to a lot of people. Like uh, recently you kind of broke the 20 K mark on Twitter and uh, you've, you've got a bunch of published works uh, under your, under your sort of uh, repertoire of work. Uh, I kind of, I'm kind of curious uh, the, the, the biggest, 
hallmark of your work seems to be like monsters or uh, atypical form. Like in terms of that, like what, 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 what's kind of your interest in monsters? If why, you don't mind my asking. Why do you like monsters so much, Francie? Yeah. What's up with that? You've asked me a really dangerous question because I have a habit of letting specific topics run away with me and escalate until I've hit on about 15 different like little digressions and, and so forth. Uh, I think I'm going to try and keep it's this. It's a good thing you're on it. a podcast. Uh, yes. She took <laughs> the words out of my mouth. It's a good thing you're on a podcast. For it. Let it fly. And certainly. I, I like podcasts that have a lot of digressions and uh, run for several hours. So let's see if we can rack up the numbers here. Um, my fascination with monsters goes back a, a long, a long way. Uh, I, um, so uh, I was I was the uh, the the child of uh, diplomats, um, a pair of diplomats in the employ of um, uh, the UK government, and as a result, that meant that uh, I moved wherever uh, they moved us. Um, and uh, that, most of my earliest memories were actually uh, from New Delhi, from India, which is where we were first. Then we came back to the UK after a short stint in Thailand, which was kind of a transitional period. Um, and then we were back in the UK. And then after that, we went to Switzerland and then we came back to the UK. And I, I think um, a lot of my interest in monsters has kind of just developed organically from this bizarre like cauldron of influences that I have received growing up. I've gone to several different, very sharply, uh, very sharply opposed models of education. I started at uh, uh, the International School in Delhi at like a, a, a USA style kindergarten and then sharply veered to the other side uh, when we returned to the UK and I was put into um, uh, a, a boys only private school, um, like th which you can imagine was uh, a great way to grow up uh, when you're uh, not quite yet, but will someday be wrestling with uh, conceptions of gender. Uh, sharply veering again from there to uh, another sort of like much more welcoming and like uh, more laid back, like more sort of human focused international school experience back in Switzerland. Uh, and throughout all of this, I was just obsessively consuming anything I could read and get my hands on because um, I very quickly came to learn that the groups of friends that I was building around myself while I was, you know, I, I would get one or two incre incredibly strong friends that I invested a lot of like uh, time and love and so forth into, and then we would move again. Uh, so mm. the, the the real constant for me was just consuming everything I could in terms of reading. My parents um, brought in a tutor for me in India uh, uh, because I, I don't think they trusted the kindergarten. Um, uh, I don't know why they didn't, but um, that led to me like learning to read fairly early. And then after that, I just consumed literally anything that I could get my hands on. I emptied uh, shelves worth of books that were just total dross. Like I, I would read anything that came within reach uh, and it resulted in this melange of media that eventually just it kind of boiled over in me and the stuff that that i found of interest kind of came to the surface and that was primarily monsters um of any kind monsters in myth i was very invested in mythology monsters in uh in science in scientific fact uh, i was obsessed with dinosaurs for the longest time because they felt like the closest parallel to like living monsters uh biology also interested me for the longest time uh, i was fairly convinced as a kid that i wanted to be a scientist but i eventually realized that what i really wanted to do was to see a monster in the flesh or to like encounter something that could be described as monstrous and i pretty quickly realized that that's not the purview of of science or scientists uh 
And um, after a couple of formative exposures to, and this is like a horrible cliche for someone of my age in the uh, illustration industry, uh, formative exposures to some Studio Ghibli work, I saw um, Spirited Away, a, a cinema um, in uh, the UK when it was first on general release. Uh, and that had such a profound effect on me. It tilted the entire course of my life and I began to invest in invest myself into drawing. Um, and uh, yeah, the work you remember, the pencil work that I did, that was pretty much it for the longest time because pencils were the most readily available object I had. And I was very enamored with displays of technical skill uh, on behalf of a pencil. I, I liked the idea of deeply, intensely rendered stuff. I was obsessed with Games Workshop um, imagery. Like Warhammer was a huge influence growing up. It was an obsession for me before. And before I left for Switzerland and while I was in Switzerland, Warhammer was uh, uh, all-consuming, and um, there's a lot of very intense black and white rendering uh, in the uh, the Warhammer supplemental books from that period. And I found that the best way to imitate that, and it was just pretty much imitation or attempted imitation, was pencils, very heavy pencils, very heavy rendering. Uh, I taught myself a lot of tricks to um, get... Uh, to acquire like praise and attention from adults, primarily. Like I, I, I try to be honest with myself about this. As a kid, I was less interested in actually improving myself than I was in getting like, uh, in getting attention or or like special validation from uh, adults around me. And the number one thing that does that, if you are like a, a smaller child, like invested in art, is to try and render something incredibly, to an incredible level of detail, or to try and like like create something that resembles reality or whatever. Uh, and um, I learned a lot of tricks like for doing very smooth pencil gradients or doing like very intricate small drawings that were actually kind of terrible, honestly, um, but were precisely designed to like get that particular kind of attention that I wanted. And mm. that went on for a long time. And that's kind of where my like uh, weird, gnarly over-rendered style developed. Uh, and um, the point which you mentioned earlier where I started to try and move from that to uh, where I am now came right after I finished um, what would be high school in an American Hello? sense, secondary school uh, over here. And I I realized like very suddenly that um, after leaving that and deciding I was going to do a foundation degree for my first sort of year of uh, higher education in art, um, foundation degree in art, I realized that I either had to um, throw out everything that I knew prior and relearn uh, and teach myself the actual principles of working as an artist or an illustrator for real, or I was going to have to abandon it. Um, and I threw out all my pencils and I got a whole bunch of ballpoint pens. Um, and I just spent uh, a whole summer like relearning how to draw. And that was kind of the, that's, I consider that to be the actual beginning of where I am now. Um, the pencil stuff is certainly still there to some degree, but uh I, I see the the line that, that ends in the career that I have now, I think, started summer 2013 after I decided that I had to relearn everything. Um, sorry, I, I did exactly what I said I was going to. I, I went off on a huge tangent, and I didn't even really talk that much about why I was invested in monsters, but there you well, go. Well, that's why uh, you're here, to talk. <laughs> there you go. That's what's up. Wait, can I interject real quick before you move on, sure. Michelle? Uh, so totally. would you say that Studio Ghibli in the art circles or art student circles or whichever it is is kind of like the final fantasy or nintendo uh, of art compared to game design Ruben. final fantasy and nintendo are also are also like huge the thing is that, that there's a sort of um there's a cluster of influences that are extremely common as the sort of like uh the primary interaction that you have with a certain kind of media that then 
inspires you to pursue a career in that media. Uh, and in illustration, that's that's like a, a very tight knit set of um, of specific directors or studios. And I would say you could probably it's Nintendo is a huge one. Final Fantasy is also a huge one. Um, and I was exposed to both Nintendo and Final Fantasy, and they had influences as well. But I would say Studio Ghibli is a huge one as uh, for sure. Uh, it's um, Spirited Away, especially like has a very profound impact on you if you see it as a child because it's a film that is designed to like um it's designed to appeal to like a child's experience but also unlike like disney stuff which disney has also a huge influence on a lot of people but for me as a kid like disney was um disney was fairly like uh it was kind of cloying i guess like i enjoyed the films as a kid and i don't want to imply that i had some sort of higher like understanding where i was like this is saccharine dross and I, as an adult uh, already in in mind if not in body i understand why <laughs> why this is uh why this this is this is nothing compared to the works of the great hayao miyazaki i think it was more just that um i think it's a love of the grotesque uh and miyazaki hmm. like for whatever else is going on with miyazaki and he is a, a complex individual and uh no, certainly not the figure he is painted as uh he does have um an appreciation like i do i think for something a kind of beauty or like um uh a kind of beauty or appeal that you can find in the grotesque one of the last things i did before leaving um uh dulwich college uh which was my the aforementioned sort of high school or secondary school which was probably the lowest point of my entire life uh truly miserable but um after right before leaving it there was a period after exams were done but before the school year ended where we were invited to write some sort of incredibly self-indulgent uh pseudo academic essay on any subject and i wrote uh, an incredibly lengthy screed that was partly about um the polish artist Czesław Beksinski and mostly about the love that i had for the the beauty of the grotesque sort of like um it's it's not as though i'm trying to find some sort of like uh some people describe it as as being something on the lines of like a like a spice or something on the lines where you you like it by contrast like it it elevates like real beauty for you because this thing is so different from it or it defines it more sharply but mm -hmm. it, it is quite literally just that i look at things that that uh, are typically like like described as grotesque or monstrous or whatever and i find them just genuinely beautiful and saying that also makes me sound incredibly like self-indulgent and wanky and no, it like it, it's impossible to talk about these things uh um in, in terms well, that can't be interpreted that, as sort of like self-elevating uh or self-aggrandizing like I, only i can see the beauty in monsters it, it's i think I, it's actually a very common trait, my um, my view my view from the outside looking in having known you for so many years i've probably known you for like five plus years i want to say like i think we started our friendship right around a simultaneous sort of within months of one another transition or what have you uh but but what why i picked out and after the years of getting to know you but also sort of trying to have a critical eye as well as like an enthusiast and sort of eye uh is the the experience you you've had all of all of these things that have informed uh your art it not just you go uh through you oscillate wildly through uh high brow and low brow uh, everything from religious apocryphal as well as uh you know very very campy manga 
and uh, the the sort of uh, uh, Power Ranger uh, Tok. I always Tokusatsu. fuck up this word. Tokusatsu would uh, Tokusatsu is is hugely important to me. Yes, um, I'll let you just, continue that. Just fellows in big big no, it's the fellows in big suits uh, oh, yeah. with eyeballs on them. Oh yeah, like it's you know your various kaiju's uh, pop culture figures to. Uh, religious figures to to personal takes on depictions of literary characters as well as video game characters, filmic characters. Uh, you really run the gamut. And what what's sort of interesting is the art that you have consumed that then informs the sensibilities and outcomes in terms of uh, in terms of. Uh, the the color swatches you use, the 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 use of shadow and light sources in your work. Uh, I I'm kind of reminded of those uh, sort of Russian Orthodox paintings of uh, religious figures back in the day, where there would always be this big yellow orb behind the head of said oh, yeah. religious figure, like anyone in the room, uh, and that sort of motif recurs a lot through your art. It's very difficult uh, sort of uh, vocally trying to get across that idea to a listener. Uh, But I think it's sort of important to kind of go through that because in terms of your output, there's there's always a sort of sense of the profane, uh, but it's like applied evenly throughout your subjects, which I think is you've never described yourself as a. A, a religious person, and yet the idea of the profane uh, seems to be uh, sort of all across, flatly applied to your work, which I I think is quite wonderful. It's 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 been an interesting part of knowing you and knowing all the places you've been, and all of those sort of formative bits uh, that kind of go into a composition you make. It, it's nuts. I I mean honestly, it's uh, it's not often that I I, I get like uh, this kind of um. I I've I, it's actually been a long time since I talked to someone so directly about my work in this in this way or like tried to vocalize some of the stuff. I get questions occasionally via like uh, uh like you know online services like a curious cat or something where people say what are your influences or what what do you want to draw or something on those lines and I always find it very difficult to respond because everything intersects with everything else. I feel like it's impossible to sum up every single facet of why I want to draw monsters or what monsters mean to me. Uh, it's, um, it's, well, really, the, it's, it's really the, difficult. <laughs> well, the, well, the first thing, and Eliza said, if you ask people, uh, who are your influences? I will quit the podcast. Oh, no, she I, said this I, multiple I said times. If you if you ask somebody where do you get your ideas, I will quit the podcast. But <laughs> it's it's a very similar it's a similar That's line of questioning. Question. Um, and I, I'm sure Francine is familiar with this as an artist. You get those fucking yes. questions over oh, yeah. and over, and nobody really listens to the response anyway. And no, uh, it's um. I think I think often it's kind of a um, it's it's often comes across for me especially because I get asked to list who are your inspirations who are your influences and so forth. I feel like it's sometimes it's it comes from a genuine place. A lot of the time it comes from um, 
a very pure place of like wanting to ask something because like uh, often I will appeal to people to be like, hey, ask me questions. I like to talk. Uh, I feel like some people like don't necessarily have anything specific they want to ask and want to like field a question. And they're like, this is a question you would ask an artist. And then other people I think are looking for um, a YouTube tab to pop out of the side of my head that says like, uh, see more like mm -hmm. this, uh, click here. Mm -hmm. uh, and they want me to serve up related videos um, uh, or they want some sort of connection. If there's an artist that they think my work is uh, is very similar to, or that has, has heavy influence showing and that's an artist that's important to them, they would love to see that that is reflected there. And I know I feel the same way when I um, I talk to other artists that I respect uh, or that I'm like invested in. Seeing we have a mutual influence is, is very validating and forms a sense of connection between between yourself and that artist would, when it can be kind of difficult to feel connected to an individual like that, whose work you have like a distance from due to the, the, the respect that you have for it or for the, the way that you encounter it. Like uh, it's, um, it's a, it's, it's an eternal question. Um, I've kind of given up on trying to list favorites or to rank stuff. Um, I think the best thing I can say about me, I can name a certain few people who are very, very significant influences on me. But um, I think um, what I try to do most of all is just to try and let anything potentially influence me. Um, and I'm not the best at this, as, a, as especially in the last year or so, I very much retreated into comfort zones. But um, I, think, um, I think the best thing you can do as an artist is to simply intake just about everything from every corner uh, and whatever interactions happen between 15 different streams uh, is, is where you're going to find something interesting. Uh, you can't draw from one or two sources and expect to output something that doesn't purely reflect those sources. And you can't a a take in something solely from within your media. Like I see my field as monster design more than anything. First, for before illustration, before art, I, I like to design monsters. And I think that's, uh, that's a very specific, it's a very niche kind of work that's done. And I think a lot of people who I consider to be experts in the field of monster design would not think of themselves that way or have codified it like that. But it's sort of an intersection of the way one might design a character, like a like a like a, a human character, the way one might design clothing, fashion design, uh, the way one might design architecture. Like it, it's a it's an intersection of so many different disciplines, and you have to draw from every single one of those. I want to look at fashion. I want to look at buildings. I want to listen to completely unrelated media. I want to watch crime dramas, and I want to watch documentaries, and I want to read non-fiction books about specific kinds of Norwegian leather or something on those lines. And you have no idea where anything is going to come from. And even as I'm saying this, it feels like a kind of facile or easy thing to say about, you should just keep your influences as wide as possible. But it's it's very true to how I've tried to work anyway. Uh, and that's. I, but if we want to talk about specific influences, I can also do that. Uh, I, I really do have, um, <laughs> I have like a little short list of artists who have been very important to me personally. Uh, if we wanted to talk about that, but uh, I'll, I'll go with whatever, whatever, I mean, people want to. Uh, by all means, um, uh, yeah, pop off, like. <laughs> okay. Um, well, well, hold on. Let, let's try to let's try to go like like direction wise in terms of uh, like where where's good where's a good place for you to start like like what's what's a stronger one for example like a uh, film, like, does that hit you harder than like a print artist or, you know, say like a traditional painter? Film is a difficult one because uh, I, um, I mean, hmm. 
the thing is that most of the films that I value like most profoundly to myself are very specifically their animation. And then the things that I value within those are specific visuals. Uh, a discussion that I've had with people before uh, when I've talked about stuff like this is um, I really loathe it when people describe something as having primarily style over substance, because I think that style is in and of itself an, an element of substance. Uh, it's, it's a portion of it. You may dislike that and you may be completely correct uh, in disliking a work that pl places you know a visual motif or some sort of like visual flair or whatever above say like character development or like uh, like you know coherent uh, uh, narrative arc or anything on those lines but i think that it's very um diminishing of the work that uh that, that artists do uh artists among other people many other people involved in the production of something as complex as a film especially an animated one um it's it's very diminishing to say that this it, 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 the implication with style over substance is often that style is lesser that it has like a um a, a a sort of transparent or like foam like quality to it that it dissipates whereas substance is substance is hard substance is real you need to build a house out of substance not style i think style is like i said it in and of itself a kind of substance it may not be the right kind of substance for something but it requires just as much effort, uh, just as many hours, just as much time, and just it is the accumulated fruit of everything that has gone into a person to produce that. So uh, as much as I'd like to say that there are specific films that I like for the sake of them being films, it's more often in almost everything, whether it's a book or an opera or anything, I, the thing I take away from it will be some specific kind of, of style, some moment, some vis visual that captured me. Uh, and then that often elaborates onwards. Although I am a sucker for... Uh, uh, high melodrama. I love um, very broad, uh, uh, gauche, like uh, Grand Guignol, um, like uh, narrative notes and stuff like that. I love that. I love uh, big spectacular tragedies. Uh, but I, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Here I, here I go again. Uh, film, film. Um, I would say that I don't think there's any specific medium that hits me more or less than any other. Uh, I can only name examples that that stand out at me. I would say. A, a comic uh, or um, or a, a comic or an art book, something that is visual first and is already directly like an image such as I might like draw myself, something that I can empathize with directly with regards to the creation of or uh, the execution of like that. That's something that stands out to me. So that has a better chance of, of impacting me, but maybe slightly. But I, I like I said, I, I try to draw it from all sides and I, I can't say there's any one medium that immediately says to me like oh yeah no if it's if it's a film i'm gonna get on board with it i don't i, don't, I, I can't be certain <laughs> but francine you also mentioned you had uh, a list of artists that you do consider primaries we don't have to go too deep but if you wanted to just uh like name names for the sake of establishing that style get that or, close or for the sake of for the sake of um kind of just giving the re the listeners a reference feel free to, to yeah just list them off Okay. Uh, I mean, a couple of that have been very important to me in the last few years, specifically, as I've been trying to decide what direction to steer my work in. And that's been a crossroads that stands between, like, do I invest more in line work like I, I used to, or do I, like, go wholly into painting? And how does that change the way that I do rough sketches? And how does that change the way that I output to clients? And how does that, etc.? cetera. Uh, I've been using a couple of artists as sort of... Um, milestones or like landmarks by which to orient myself in that sense because they produce work that i would be proud to produce myself like unutterably proud uh so i've been trying to steer myself using them as influences uh and some of those artists would be uh uh almost all of them um 
are actually um, uh, Japanese, I've realized. Uh, uh, Yasushi Nirasawa uh, from the tokusatsu scene. Uh, Tamotsu Shinohara, also a tokusatsu legend. Takayuki Takea also additionally works within tokusatsu spaces, um, uh, but is primarily a sculptor. Keita Amamiya, uh, who worked with all of them. Uh, in fact, I've kind of become invested in the work of this sort of circle of um, individuals from uh, Japan who came to like uh, prominence in the uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s through to the 2000s, who uh, all either grew out of or were involved with the garage kit scene, the sort of like uh, uh, semi-underground uh, sculptures, sculpture hobbyist enthusiast scene in Japan where they were producing unlicensed common Rider kits and so forth that were these uh, wildly elaborate and uh, uh, in usually fairly grotesque reimaginings of uh, existing properties. And I love to reinterpret stuff. I love to take simple designs and render lots of ridiculous gnarly detail into them and try and uh, elaborate little like uh, rough, ambiguous details into something much more complex uh and it often diminishes the design i think in an objective sense to do that kind of thing because designs that are simple and communicate themselves strongly are very, very that's 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 an objective strength but uh it's something that i i, I find personally in, uh, engaging but outside of them um i think uh, uh one artist that i particularly want to talk about is wayne barlow um who uh is uh wayne barlow uh started uh his his career as uh a paperback um, uh, and uh, sort of science fiction fantasy cover illustrator uh, for magazines, for uh, like I said, for paperback novels back in the 70s, I think, uh, when sure. he was very young. And Wayne um, is interesting to me because, first of all, he's one of my long longest influences. I remember discovering his work back at Dulwich College um, and uh, obsessively browsing his website, obsessively browsing. Uh, uh, the books that I could find of his, uh, which are very thin on the ground, by the way, I treasure the copies that I have now because the art books he has produced have gone out of print uh, fairly quickly and barely ever come back into it. Um, Wayne is, um, this th again, it feels very self-aggrandizing to compare myself to an individual like Wayne because he has had a career that's spanned a much greater span of time than my own. And I think that what he's accomplished is on a greater scale. But I have seen a lot of myself in Wayne um, and in his in, in the, the arc of his career, I see, I think a lot about what my career would have been like if I had existed in an earlier time frame. because entry into the illustration industry, entry into especially the fantasy and science fiction illustration industry, the, which now has a huge, almost 100% overlap with production for games, films, so forth, because mm. our culture, the, 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 the massive, the massive like blockbuster engine of culture is obsessed with science fiction and fantasy right now in a way it hasn't been uh, since the, the heyday. Um, so there's this near one-to-one -one overlap. I've thought a lot about what it would be like to have entered it at a different time and place uh, when I was uh, prior to the existence of something like the internet, prior to the existence of something like the existing sort of library of genres and subdivision of genres where there was this sort of very strange, like sprawling set of, uh, of artists like, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry if I get some of these names wrong, uh, Roger Dean, um, uh, Bruce Pennington. Uh, uh, I was going to ask about Bruce Pennington, actually. He Bruce is Pennington, a, uh, yes. Um, he, he had some art license for a metal band that I quite like. Yes. Um, for an album release. Like, that was how I discovered him as an artist. They all entered into an industry where uh, 
like I solicit all of my clients myself. I am my own agent. Um, I put out uh, my, I put myself out there and I say, I am doing X number of commissions and people come to me and I select the work that I feel like I can do my best at or that I have space for. Uh, and um, that is, that is the norm for huge numbers of freelancers right now for the vast majority of freelance illustrators. I know personally, that is like, that is the norm. You put yourself out there, you say you have commission slots, you, uh, you might have like, you know, more sort of high end product professional work that you do via contract and which is solicited by someone more formal. But for most of us, we do it ourselves because the, the, the systems that used to, uh, exist to facilitate like illustrators meeting clients and so forth, something like a like a like a publishing house or an illustration house where you would get an agent and you may be one of six or seven illustrators who belong to this agent who they are like soliciting work for that doesn't exist anymore or if it does it exists in a way that's incredibly diminished because the vast majority of those those sort of stables are like sewn up you can't get into them um and you certainly can't get into them as an untested like you know uh 20 something who just likes to paint fan art of evangelion or whatever uh that that just doesn't exist anymore but wayne barlow went through that. He was incredibly young, younger than I was when he got his first uh, professional work. He was started working at like um, something like 20, 21, I think, 19 maybe. Mm. Um, and uh, he was immediately doing covers for books and covers for magazines and so forth. And that, because someone saw him and decided this kid could, can make me a buck right. and started, like they said, I'll make, I'll be your agent. I'll start like soliciting this stuff. And in the years since then, he has grown and he has had the uh, the unique special arc that many illustrators from that era uh, have had, which, uh, you know, which, which they may have coveted or may have fallen into uh, by accident or by their own design, which is to outgrow, uh, outgrow being merely someone who facilitates um, someone else's uh, work and to be respected and desired for, your, for the sake of your own work, to go from being a warm body who will paint you a dragon to being someone that someone else seeks out specifically because the way you paint dragons is compelling or because there exists a fan base for your own work. There's a following for you, not for the works, not for, there may be followings for works you have, you have contributed to, but people go to Wayne Barlow because they want Wayne Barlow's art. And that's something that, um, that's something that I think is, is it's always been very important to me to like, I, I want someday to be desired, like to, to have clients come to me because they want something specific from my work, not because they need someone who, who knows how to paint. And it's incredibly like, you know, it's, 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 it's vain to think that you can be desired say, like that, but, um, but it's, well, it's, about it's, to say, it's a lot of very successful stuff that I've, I've seen you, you know, get, uh, get some play on various social media for is, you know, some of your fan works as well as like tributes to X amount of things. And I mean, do you, do you kind of wonder sometimes like, uh, like, do you have to like tick the certain boxes to be like commercially viable while still retaining your own identity as an artist? I think that what's viable in the commercial space is hugely different depending on which mm -hmm. part of the commercial space you want to enter into. Um, and I think that I, I have never like felt myself. Uh, I have been very fortunate in that regard. I have never been in a situation where I have been forced to make myself commercially uh, like appealing. I've been in situations where I have been hired because someone did not know who I was and just decided that they needed an artist. I notably fairly recently, I was in an in-studio job just before studios ceased being a thing where I was uh, doing design work for theme parks. Um, and that was very 
disorienting because uh, they had no idea who I was and they did not give a shit, which is, you know, I'd reached the point where like most of my online clients came to me because they liked the way I draw monsters on those lines. And then I had this very abrupt awakening where I was like, that exists only in like a specific sphere that you have surrounded yourself with. Outside of that, like most of these people who are going to pay you for contracted work, they do not know who you are. They are not interested in you. They, they only want you there because you know how to use Photoshop or Illustrator or so forth. And they need someone to paint a waiting room area for a uh, a theme park ride like yesterday uh they need that as quickly as you can possibly get it for them um <laughs> but that didn't but getting there didn't require me to very specifically tailor myself to that um it was just it just happened because my work like made itself evident that i knew how to at least use photoshop that was about the extent of it uh i think these days there's a very sharp division there i think you're either sought out because you have the skills you, you simply have like art skills and you are capable of doing something like that or you are they have no interest whatsoever or they go all the way over to the other end and they want you because you can do a very precise thing because you have a niche skill or you have a niche like following or you have like something that is something that is valuable or unique about your own work in their eyes uh I don't think there's like I, I've at least in the freelance illustration space like that I work in which is primarily for uh, like small games, small art book releases, private clients, and so forth. I've never felt in that space the need to like tailor myself and say, I need X amount of these in my portfolio to get attention. I've certainly felt the need to go, I need to have more human faces in my portfolio so people know I know how to paint a human face and not just one that's erupting into a whole bunch of teeth and mandibles. Um, but uh, I've been lucky in that I've had to, I've been able to like, to, to mostly work like on, on my own merit. That's, that's, that might, I'm fairly certain that's actually uh, kind of just incredible luck on my behalf and no small amount of privilege. Like I've been very fortunate in that I have very rarely or never had to deal with some things like housing security or job security. I have often been supported both by my parents and by friends and so forth that have allowed then that has allowed me to dedicate myself to pursuing what I find interesting in my work and to build a career based off of that. I'm never going to pretend that I have some sort of unique skill that has allowed me to avoid having to tailor myself in that way. It comes very specifically from a bedrock of like uh, economic and like familial support that's allowed me to grow that way. Like that's that's just the reality of it. And if I deny that, then uh, I'm I'm a huge piece of shit. So that's that's <laughs> worth considering. Um, you know, be be a little charitable yourself. <laughs> it's cool. You've you've been you've been you've been an excellent friend to me and, and many others. So. I know there's always that sort of this that sort of need to be humble, and it's from a great human place. But yeah, uh, uh, I'm just picturing a lot of people. Uh, who I think self awareness is fine. Uh, I'm picturing a lot of people who have only ever known me because they follow my Twitter, uh, seeing this the, the post, the the link to this podcast, and being like, "Wow, I can't wait to hear what she sounds like," and then coming in here and listening to about ten seconds of me, and then just grimly tabbing back and unfollowing me that's just that's the phantom image that's like haunting oh me right now but I'm, gonna, no, I'm, listen, I'm gonna let go all, of that yeah that's that's neuroses it's not reality yep yep that's exactly I what nothing if said. not neurotic that is all i was I, going I am, to say i am riddled with neuroses uh, i i i francine this is the first time i'm hearing your voice and honestly you sound like someone that would spit in someone's mouth for giving you shrimp here's my like, snappy response I, I'm never going to turn down more shrimp. Uh, so you can be sure that if I spit on someone, it's not because they gave me shrimp. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all, if, if anyone's got some shrimp to hand, I, I love a good shrimp tempura, shrimp paste, whatever you got. I love shrimp. 
I'm always it's, saying this. This is so so tangential. Shrimp is this good. This is so tangential because it's uh, it, it's just literally a connection in my head between shrimp and another kind of crustacean. But I, if we're talking about my journey as an artist, I was just reminded very vividly now that there is a small framed picture at my mother's house in London of um, uh, a red crab drawn in a felt tip marker, which is the earliest surviving drawing that I ever made as a kid, which was made of a crab uh, or my, my rec recollection of a crab because we did not have it to hand after my mother took my, my brother and me out as very, very small children to go crab fishing, which is one of the few things you can do for entertainment in um, Dorset, in coastal Dorset, which is where she grew up, uh, one of the places she grew up. Uh, and crab fishing involves, um, it doesn't actually involve fishing for crab uh, to actually eat and, and, and keep. Uh, it's, it's literally just a form of self-entertainment where you go out to a small wooden pier or the edge of the water uh, and you get a bucket and you lower the bucket into the water and you put several small pieces of bacon in the bucket and inevitably crabs will crawl into the bucket because uh, they love bacon and they they have also i think grown Natural very accustomed to the crab, crab fishing practice they know yeah. what's happening they know what's going to happen is that they're going to get in the, bu the bucket they're going to eat some <laughs> bacon they're going to be pulled back up to the surface uh, and then they're going to be taken out of the bucket and they're going to be showed to probably a child or like just held for a bit and examined like, wow, what a crab. And then they're going to be put back in the bucket and lowered back into the water. They're not even harmed. They're not even just imagining no or anything. I'm just imagining like one crab telling another crab like, gonna... dude, have you tried? Have you tried the, the weird pork? Have you tried the bacon stuff? I don't even know what it's called. Dude, oh, dude, you got it. You got to try it. You got to try this. It's like it's like the crab equivalent of, of doing an acid trip with your friends. Yep. Oh man, it's it's so great. You eat, you get you eat the bacon God. and then you just you're floating up with the, a huge hairless ape is like manhandling you. You can hear distant like voices. It's fucking great. Then you're back in the water. You've you've got a belly full of bacon. You're good. Uh, you don't eat the crab because you're catching. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Crab fishing in this context, if, if you're seriously fishing for crab in coastal Dorset, then you're going out on a boat uh, and you're throwing a net overboard or crab pots or something and you're bringing in several hundred crab and then you're selling them because most of like uh, coastal rural England has kind of lost its ability to fish for uh, like on an individual level. Um, all of that is is gone, and so uh, I mean, I imagine there are probably large numbers of people who still do that, but it's it's not it's not significant enough like that. It's you can expect a person who catches something in England to to fish and eat it. They they fish fishing in England on a personal one to one level has become the preserve of those who wish to entertain themselves. In this particular case, crab fishing is probably one of the more benign ones because it doesn't injure the crabs. The crabs are fed and returned hale and hearty, aside from like being overturned by a small child in their hands for a bit. It's mostly just something you do to like. I there were about four or five other people every time we went crab fishing when my mother would take us to Dorset, and they were just sitting there uh, at the end of the pier, and they would just pick the crabs up and look at them. They appreciated the crab. They put it back in the water. This is probably not something that even happens anymore. To be clear, uh, I have no idea. I just remember this happening multiple times when I was a child. My mother said that she used to do it when she was a child. I think when she was a child, there was still the, the chance that you might say, I'm going to bring this crab home. But to be clear, you are not catching giant crabs with this technique. You're catching small crabs. You're catching the kind of crabs that scuttle across the beach and you point at them and go, wow, a crab. Uh, if you were bringing, if you brought in a super king size <laughs> crab, you might consider keeping it. But uh, certainly I don't think any of the crabs that we got would provide more than about 10 seconds of, uh, of, of, of nourishment uh, at, at that. 
Well, would you get more? Would you get more crab than you had bacon? Like how many, how many batons of bacon? You'd be surprised how many crabs will show up for one very small cube of bacon. We're talking like a single lardon. You get like four or five crabs. I guess actually, now I think about it, you could probably take all the crabs at once and make a decent amount of crab from that. Uh, like a crab pot. You get a good stock going. See, I like. Um, I like soft shell crab. I like deep, deep fried soft shell crab, which is something that I discovered um, I could order uh, when I was living in uh, St. Albans, uh, which is just outside of London. Um, there was a restaurant that you could order uh, soft shell crab from. Um, and uh, I had never really gotten that much into crab. I liked lobster rolls and so forth. I had no objection to crab, but uh, I didn't eat much of it. And on a complete whim, I was like, the picture of this looks like they deep fried the entire crab, just legs and claws and all. That's amazing to me. I have to try that. And that is indeed what soft shell crab is. It's a relatively small hand-sized crab. It, because it is soft shelled, i.e. it is just malted, um, uh, they, they kill it and eat it at a very specific time for this effect. Uh, it doesn't have... Um, it doesn't have any real crunch to the shell. It's kind. It is soft all the way through. So you literally just dip it in tempura batter and fry it, and it's just a whole crab. And something again, getting back to my love of the grotesque, there was something about the image of just having an entire crab and just popping it into my mouth like that and being able to eat the whole thing, claws and all, that was very appealing to me and very distressing to my roommate. Uh, and as a result, uh, I would I would refrain from ordering too many soft shell crabs. It's been a while since I had one. But I would really like one. They go really well with like a ginger sauce or something. Did you ever ask your roommate if you do like a, a horrifying face as you enjoy consuming a being whole, and that's why they don't? Uh, she 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 insisted that I did make a horrifying face whenever I consumed the crabs. So uh... okay, <laughs> they made their own bed and then they slept in it. Yeah, I agree. Any any grotesque type food like that, I will absolutely order and try at least once. And seafood's great for that because there's so many seafoods that you can just you can eat the whole thing and or the animal in question looks like it's from hell. When you get calamari as a kid, that's always like a fun. Like I remember when I was a kid and I graduated from we'd get fried calamari at an Italian place for like an appetizer. And I graduated from eating just the rings of, of stuff to the little the legs, the actual legs. And I felt much more like a grown-up as a kid. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. this is what grown-ups do. They eat the legs. It's a sign of maturity. <laughs> I, um, I've been trying to eat a little bit more uh, vegan in the last few years uh, because I, I think that that's an adjustment we're probably all going to have to make. Um, oh, sure. Uh, but um, uh, it's it's not... I would be very interested in trying to, like, uh, I don't know raise my own livestock i guess or something on those lines on a small scale uh i feel like um uh, i'm very disconnected as uh um uh as a person from the reality of the meat that i consume and i don't want to be that way uh i like i, I would like to at least try like getting closer to the process of actually like uh butchering and consuming meat that you have raised like to understand it more like i feel like that's the only way i'm going to be able to I'm growing gradually less comfortable with eating meat, and I feel like if if I don't like put myself through that at least once, I'm I'm probably going to reach a point where I will desist altogether. But uh, certainly, yeah. I would like to I would like to go fish. Maybe just fish some crabs up. Maybe go back crab fish, and this time I keep the crab and I eat it. Yeah, you have to learn to monster hunt in real life. Yeah, certainly. I think I'm done with red meat. I mostly just eat um, uh, these particular like uh, plant burgers, but that that's also just because uh, it's been a long time since I had like a like a beef product that wasn't um, slow cooked beef that I uh, found appealing. I've yet to 
like I had a lot of steak growing up because we were jetting all over uh, the continent, all over Europe, and steak fleet is a very reliable f- meal you can get for fussy kids um, at a bistro mm. or whatever while you're mm-hmm. road tripping. Um, and uh, I can't say that, that I ever looked forward to the steak. Uh, the st- the, I, I imagine you can cook a really fantastic steak, but I personally, it's just a little bit. It's never really fully appealed, and after a while, the same was true of beef burgers. But I still like the construct of a burger. Uh, so putting something else in that patty has been fantastic for us. Uh, I really enjoy these um, these plant burgers, and I, it made me realize that, like, for me, the burger is way more about um, the bun, the sauce, and the assorted like trappings than it is the patty itself, which is kind of uh, secondary uh, in a lot of ways. Man, I I completely disagree. Yeah, I do enjoy burgers. Like, I, I eat plant burgers, but I don't think there's any disputing that a, a regular burger will taste better to me. I think I think the thing is, where they're getting, where they're on the right track is where they try to replicate that weird hormonal response to, like, the taste of blood and that weird coppery sort of back note of it and kind I, of uh... have that in the, when they get there. When they get the taste of blood like fully down, we're gonna go ham on these For fucking with- fake ass burgers. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know about lab grown meat, but you're more likely to get it from that than from a plant thing. For me, with meat substitutes, uh, I I don't like meat substitutes. That's it. I would much rather that like I know that there's there's this is never going to happen because there's a very specific kind of like like market that it, marketing that has to be done around this kind of thing and the forces the forces that dictate the almighty power of marketing will always drive things in a certain direction. But I infinitely prefer um, vegan alternatives alternatives to meat that market themselves as themselves rather than as like this is this is just like meat this is just like I would rather it just be a different thing that just doesn't have meat in it that's why I like um, seitan for instance it's not I think it's very um, it's mm. I, I'm not interested in something that replicates meat I'm interested in something that can can be used instead of meat because it has some of the same properties and interacts similarly with cooking methods or sauces or whatever, but I'm not interested. And I'm also not interested ultimately in eliminating meat completely from my diet. I just want to reach a point where the meat that I consume is, um, is specifically chosen is like more, uh, is, is more worthwhile and is more, um, and where I am more like aware of the process that's involved in getting it, I think being conscious of that uh, is, is is important. But I think Satan is great. There is a place here in London, in Camden, which I dearly miss that I'm going to go back to as soon as, uh, I guess as soon as I can get there because um, uh, like uh, I'm starting to go back out into London very carefully, double masked and with extreme caution. Um, but uh, there's a place called the Temple of Satan, um, which I, I love the name. It's a little it's a little cringy, but I'm I'm very delighted by their their whole theming. Oh and yeah, they just do they do what I was craving for from uh, from from vegan food or from vegetarian stuff in general for a long time, which is just really junky stuff. They do really fantastic like piled high fried chicken burgers and sort of uh, super greasy fries and all that stuff, and they do amazing things with seitan, uh, as their name would suggest. And uh, <laughs> I think that's that's for me where it goes. I want I want vegan alternatives that are not pretending to be meat, but are saying not only is this not meat like this is something alternative that might even be better or like has its own its own unique qualities that make it appealing it's not trying to be it's not calling itself like plant bacon it's it's just called something completely new like you know instead of that if obviously there's plenty of things that already exist like that like tempeh tofu like seitan they do not they do not define themselves as like meat substitute but i think we should go even further we need even more different kinds of things instead of you know if someone wants to invent a new kind of bacon alternative they can just call it like i don't know 
sell sell sells gnats or something like just come up with a completely new name it's it's a new thing it, it's kind of like bacon you can use well, it like bacon in the same way sure. but it's not pretending to be bacon uh yeah all naming of these types of products is ultimately going to end up as a type of marketing right it changes your perception of the way that you of the the product because the moment it describes itself as imitation bacon you're comparing it to actual bacon and that's a right. comparison that it's just never going to be able to like to, to clear even regardless of how you feel about about the quality of bacon and god knows bacon and the quality thereof has become um insufferable to discuss uh in in most online spaces thanks to one particular marketing effort uh but um it's just you, you, i don't like to make a direct comparison like that i would rather it, it like market itself on what it has to offer in and of itself as as a rendell strip or a, a B- build buildsman buildsman's can or whatever i don't know whatever i'm writing name these names down to... i'm writing all of these names down <laughs> lashings of rendell strips piled <laughs> high on the table so that's how you fish for crab well that's crab fishing yeah. i guess uh... <laughs> i mean i would kind of like to still stay within this idea here like should we get like immediately into like geometric shapes of of vegetable no units <laughs> no fuck you no no <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the problem. The more you process something, the more carcinogenic it becomes. And that's that's like one of the big reasons. A lot of times people will convert to veganism and then like two years later, they are they get like really serious metabolic disorders. And they're like, why am I diabetic? I'm vegan. I eat healthy. And they're not eating healthy. They're eating Oreos and corn nuggets. And those that shit is delicious it's so good but it's like every time a piece of food touches another piece of processing equipment it picks up basically contamination and i mean this is they're they're finding that this this contamination from processing equipment is worse for you than pretty much anything else um so um, francine's right we need we need like plant-based foods that are not processed to the point where they're trying to be something else they just should be standing on their own merits and they have a lot of fucking merits you know for sure i mean you know i think the way i think the way subsidies works in the in the states at least as far as i go is that yeah it airs more towards the side of processing or whatever because that uh, the way the subsidies you can put more corn into it that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you could basically absolutely. put more corn into it. And then the more corn you could make something, the cheaper it is to make. And, you, and then, yeah, then you just end up with food deserts uh, everywhere. And there are just all of these base components united by fucking corn. I hate, I hate kernel corn by itself, but that's a whole different episode, folks. I Oh, man. Frozen corn is such a nice snack. On the cob, or you just mean like only separate kernels? Like out of the Those freezer bag? fucking separate kernels. The freezer bag or the can. Yo, I used to get roasted. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Eliza, you just single-handedly validated my childhood. Yes. 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 We are in the same boat. I was just going to say this. Frozen peas, corn? frozen corn. Frozen corn and peas. Mm-hmm. Corn by I would, itself. As a child, I would reach into the freezer and just grab like a few out of the bag, like a handful out of the bag. You just eat it cold? Yeah, it's totally legit. It's a good snack. It's nice. Okay, hold on. Let me go do that. <laughs> this sounds like bullshit to me. Yeah, give it a shot. Give it a shot. All right. Hold on. Yeah. 
live folks it's live happening. report of Ruben trying some corn out of his freezer. Fucking sick. Corn by itself is one of the uh, one of the lost foods that are left uh, in in what used to be a much much longer list of incredibly. Um... Oh my god! I, I used to no, be this incredibly is this is audio fussy material. about stuff. Hey. Honestly. Uh... All right, we have Kirkland Signature Organic White Sweet Corn, frozen. Okay. Five pound bag. Yeah, just eat eat like what two or three kernels. Pop them in. I'll do. Three. He's just gonna get a big fucking icy clump. I hope he likes it. I'll do five individual kernels. Oh, it's ASMR time, baby. Um, Sharpen a knife while you do this. It's. I was stropping, I told you. I am... Ew, that's pretty good. <laughs> All right, yeah. Yeah. Let's fucking go. Let's fucking go. Welcome to the club, baby. What's up? So to the viewers at home, to get more context than um, just it's pretty good. Um, if we don't have corn to eat right now, mm, it's like it's like a sherbet texture. It's corn ice cream, essentially. Yes, yes. Yeah. A little, a little mm. corn, like a uh, frozen delight. Mmm. It's like a zero effort little little snack. It's good for summertime, you know, because it's cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a nice popsicle. <laughs> you just take a take a pocketful to go. Yeah, but it's it's a vegetable. I mean, it's a starchy vegetable, but it's a vegetable. It's a whole vegetable. You got some some fiber in there. That's good for you. Yo, I um, used to. I totally used to get shit for eating corn out of the freezer. It is so good. Yeah. Extra water. It, it's hydrating. The potassium, potassium is off these charts. Nice. I'm glad you like it, man. I can't relate because I was a horribly fussy eater as a child, like catastrophically so. There are entire, not even like groups of food, entire like um, kingdoms of food that I would not touch because I had profound like sensory issues with the idea of, uh, not in a real sense, I'm I'm not trying to like pathologize this or elevate it to the condition of something. I was just a very fussy kid. Uh, I didn't like what I described as wet food, which is to yeah. say anything that could not be pinned down with a fork, cut in half with a knife, and eaten just like as pieces, basically. So spaghetti, noodles, pasta of all kinds, soups, uh, uh, anything like too sort of sloppy in construction, or, or like you know, like a lasagna, about, or anything that like falls apart. Like what about uh, like I just, melted I, cheese or something like that? Melted cheese on something, I did it. I I got around to quicker than other things, but cheese in general. Uh, I still won't eat like um, like uh, what what I have uh, taken to uh, describing as raw cheese, which is to say unmelted <laughs> cheese. Um, raw cheese, raw cheese, baby. Uh, um, but uh, over the last uh, four years, specifically, um, my um, uh, my partner, my fiance uh, uh, Lauren, um, uh, has through great personal effort um uh managed to expand my diet so much that um i am now eating almost everything um and i will try almost it. everything and uh, i feel uh like i was i feel like i've come out of a, a long period of um of self-enforced uh like torture basically because i have deprived myself of things like uh broth in ramen and uh ramen itself and like a million different kinds of vegetable and salad and so forth i was um 
I'm not really sure what happened there. My mother said that I ate everything up to a certain point, and then when I was about four or five, I just very aggressively refused to eat anything except certain types of food, uh, and uh, we never found out what happened. Um, I kind of went through that when I was a kid too. Like I, I remember, yeah, we went to a Mexican restaurant and they brought me like a PB and J. Like my parents packed one for me. Like that oh, it was yeah. that level. Oh of, yeah, no, of no, no, no. I used to do exactly that kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's pretty common. That's that's yeah. Totally. It's a it's a child psychology thing. It usually occurs because the kid needs to exert control over something. And if 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 you just it's just something it's like kind of like a groove you can get into when you're a kid. And if no one if, if you don't snap out of it on your own, it can kind of persist into adulthood because if it happens when you're four, I mean, that's the time when you're learning all those tastes and textures and stuff. And if you hit 20 and you're still not used to eating that way, then it's hard to get started. So it's actually, it's really impressive that you managed to expand your palate now as an adult. A lot of people aren't able to do that. The thing I was most impressed by I was my newfound ability to enjoy soup because that the idea of like a hot savory liquid was like the worst of, of it was like, it was like the, 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 the true sort of like ultimate taboo that I had to break. And now <laughs> like, I, I cannot, cannot get by without like regular, like uh, really good, like ramen broth or like a French onion soup, like something like that has now become a regular like staple for me and something that I will make uh, for myself at the drop of a hat. Uh, and I, I love that. I, I'm so happy that that has changed. Um, I'm envisioning you staring down like a, a comically large dark souls, evil looking pot of soup. Yes. I started eating noodles, and yet, uh, and yet, even back when I started eating noodles and started having like you know something like a like ramen noodles or whatever or spaghetti and so forth, I would I would specifically need it to be like drained of the broth and fried or something on those lines in order to get through it. And I don't need that anymore. Like I've I've I'm now I'm now an adult, uh, and I, I eat all of the thing. Um, but <laughs> it was it was amazing how long that particular issue persisted. There are two major um, uh, roadblocks for me that still remain. Um, but at this point, it's kind of it's kind, I'm kind of reaching the point where I'm starting to realize like there may be some things that I just I truly actually do not like, and I'm not going to necessarily yeah. force myself to come to oh, like yeah. because you can have preferences. But I do wish I think it's the key thing is that there are some things I wish I could find myself eating and enjoying, and I think those are the things I will press for. One of those is um, eggs. Uh, I the, no end of like egg egg component items uh I, I enjoy like anything that has eggs in it stuff that has had eggs eggs incorporated into it that stuff I'll, I'll eat just fine um but eggs by themselves fried eggs scrambled eggs like uh eggs in the breakfast sense like i i just can't i it's it's um it's truly what which is incredibly frustrating because i look at a fried egg like a really nice fried egg where it's gotten a little crispy at the edges and so forth and it's delightful to me like visually speaking it looks delicious but i just can't bring myself to eat it that is one thing i need to get over that and that and raw cheese. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to try my best or at some point to eat a sandwich that has uh, a fried egg in it and like just a slice of, of cheese directly off of the, the cheese itself with no no additional uh, no additional melt, melting or, or, or uh, editing applied. I'm not sure if those two will go together necessarily well. It's got to be done. It's the only uh, way. But if that's the way you can overcome your, your barriers, I'm not here to stop you. Hold on. Egg and cheese? Well, as, egg, egg, and specifically not melted cheese. Oh. As I've been saying this, um, and I'm sorry to get back on the mic again, uh, I've been passed, much like Ruben, I'm about to undergo a challenge myself because I've just been passed um, a sandwich with um, uh, raw cheese and salami in it. Um, oh, snap. 
So uh, uh, if you give me a moment, I'll Ra- mute myself. Hold on. What the this. hell is raw cheese? Oh, did you miss <laughs> this? Michelle. Michelle, did you miss this? What's raw cheese? They haven't processed it? Illegal raw cheese? Michelle, um... Uh, Francine doesn't... Francine, Francine has established if cheese is not melted, it is raw. That is I, okay to be clear. I, I know how ridiculous that sounds. I use the term because it's easier than saying unmelted cheese, and also crucially because it's funnier. It's uh, very funny. Yeah. To be okay, clear. here I go. <laughs> Let's go, folks. Folks, we're watching. Oh, I forgot exclusive. to ask what kind, but we'll find out. The anticipation's killing. It's an Real extra mature shit. cheddar slice from Sainsbury's. Oh, that that's my very that's good, my actually. jam. Um, that's my jam. Yeah. That was Carpet very treasure. good. Uh, uh, that was fantastic, actually. Um, there's uh, some some yellow mustard in there as well, and um, uh, kind of, it's a Calabrese yeah. salami, which I get from a, an Italian deli in the neighborhood. I like to take long walks to, um, uh, and uh, that's. I mean, the assistance of the other elements is definitely helping. I'm um, I'm still not sure if I can surmount the challenge of eating like just a slice of raw cheese by itself, but. There we go. We conquered another mountain. So hey. now all that remains is eggs. Oh, God, we're breaking barriers on this episode. That's I am amazed. I'm so glad I was like fucking on the call to hear that. That's 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 so great to be able to witness a moment like that for someone. Thank you for sharing that with us. That does own. Yeah, shout Rock out cheese. to Lauren for preparing the for having a sandwich on hand too. Yeah, shout out Lauren, friend of the show. Absolutely. She incidentally just made one for herself, I think, um, and oh, overheard part of the conversation. Yeah. yeah, she's nodding to confirm that. <laughs> I'm still I'm still grappling oh, with wait. raw cheese. I want to get away from raw cheese. <laughs> where were you? Because Francine said raw cheese like 20 minutes ago. I I, I was I, I missed the first raw cheese. Like I may have made a sucking noise and like my my internal ear looking around. As everyone else acknowledges what raw cheese is and looking down at her notes. Yeah, dude, you've never heard of raw cheese before? Like Michelle? raw cheese? Question mark? I've never heard it once. I'm fucking beside myself. Oh, it's that great. said. Yeah, I wasn't even. I was here for that. I don't know how <laughs> temporal differences. Real quick, Francine, you've heard of raw cheese. What about. Have you had refried beans? I assume it has been prepared for you. Okay, uh, it's part of that gar- garble, but I think you, you said it was uh, beans, refried beans. Cheese yes, on refried uh, beans? Happily. Um, yeah. I, I was introduced to them in the medium of um, uh, several soups that were prepared the last time I was in uh, Oklahoma with Lauren's family. Um, we had a, a tortilla soup that had a lot of good beans and stuff in it. Um, I'm, I'm completely, I'm totally fine with those. Uh, yeah. Would you agree that the method of which that they are prepared would also, they could be probably should be renamed reduced beans i don't know enough about the beans to make a decision either way i'll defer to your bean knowledge and say i fully endorse that position all right uh actually no i was gonna i was gonna again kick the ball to one of my uh lovely co-hosts oh yeah uh, well one thing francine mentioned it's just to put a i'm gonna close the food talk because it's been good but we've got we've got time to to get to talking to other things yeah um, Do we? You mentioned a lot of your influences being tokusatsu artists or tokusatsu adjacent artists. I've always been interested in your level of fandom for tokusatsu stuff, which, to be clear to listeners, is like um, it's Japanese action entertainment in the vein of Common Rider, and it's so something term... somewhat distinct from stuff like Power Rangers, which is Sentai. Am I correct in that? Okay, uh, so the term tokusatsu and 
to be clear, first of all, I don't claim to be an expert on any of these things. Um, and if I am, if if someone sends yeah. a correction, yeah, they may sure. very well they may very well be correct. So uh, I'm I'm not going to. I'm also not one of the individuals who have like the encyclopedic knowledge of it, understanding of tokusatsu that I think to something like tokusatsu deserves, honestly, uh, to be sure, fully sure. understood. Um, but my understanding, as as it as it stands, is this. Tokusatsu is a word that specifically encompasses uh, a certain kind of uh, live suit practical effects, uh, uh, like, I guess, filmmaking initially uh, that came out of Japan, um, starting primarily in the Showa era, uh, where special effects were easiest to accomplish using, like, um, stuff that echoed, like, a B-movie or something like that, rubber suits, uh, miniature buildings. It means anything that's produced in that style. Over time... Uh, the term has had to expand to encompass lots of things, and certainly, like there are now tokusatsu shows, like for instance Garo, which have huge amounts of CG effects in them. Or the most recent season of Kamen Rider, Kamen Rider Saber, was obligated by pandemic conditions to film large portions of what is normally a very practical effects-heavy show in Unreal Engine. Um, oh, <laughs> so uh, which is very disorienting because they swap very hard oh, to it. Kamen God. Rider has infamously had terrible cg because they produce week to week um and uh, they've never really invested much in cg so very often they'll have these astonishingly crafted suits and then they'll swing their swords to summon a an array of hovering cg objects to fly at someone uh and those will look very crude but that's also part of the charm tokusatsu basically just means anything that is produced within that so Sentai is a kind of tokusatsu sentai means I see. Um, stuff that derives from one of the first like canonical sort of sentai things was Himitsu Sentai Gorenger, which was produced by I think Shotar Ishinomori, who basically created almost every um every it, he created the manga that, that that was adapted into almost every like core original uh se- like tokusatsu show, except maybe for Ultraman, which came out of a Twilight Zone style thing called Ultra Q. Uh so yeah, Tokusatsu within Tokusatsu you have um uh, Henshin stuff, which is transforming hero, and that's common writer. Uh, that's okay. people who single characters who may have other single heroes who help them, but not team elements uh, who transform to fight evil. Um, you have Sentai stuff, which is a team. Uh, Sentai stuff is has mostly only survived in the form of the very specific what is known as like the Sentai series that Power Rangers or the of thing course. that was adapted to Power Rangers a lineage of. There are not many like variant stuff outside of that these days there are still a few more henshin series than just common rider but common rider is kind of the primary henshin series sentai stuff in the vein of zioranger kakuranger uh, all of those shows are the sentai shows uh, and then the third thing which there is still a little bit more space in is kaiju uh, and that is the classic like uh, giant monsters um uh, and then you also have Ultraman, who is technically a henshin hero, but kind of overlaps with kaiju stuff because traditionally Ultraman grows to a giant size yeah. at the end of every episode or during an episode to do combat with a kaiju size uh, opponent um, who may be that size normally or may themselves transform to become that size. But you could be pretty sure that'll happen at some point. That also often happens in Sentai. It was a very popular mechanic at one point, And when Subarai's Ultraman became hugely popular, suddenly everyone else had to try and have either their own hero or they had to make everyone grow to a massive size. Uh, Godzilla, infamously, because kaiju stuff, pure kaiju stuff, was kind of failing versus um, uh, transforming giant hero stuff like Ultraman. They introduced Jet Jaguar, a hapless uh, robot um, 
uh, character fashioned after uh, a mangled version of a kid. A kid sent in a drawing that was part of a design, a character costume contest. They took the barest elements of his design for a <laughs> monster, turned them into a robot, uh, Jet Jaguar, and then tried to... They did Godzilla versus Megalon, I think is the name of the film, um, which... Uh, uh, it was basically designed to be sort of like we know Godzilla is our is our main property. We know that Henshin stuff like transforming hero, giant Ultraman stuff, way more popular right now. We're gonna have Jet Jaguar show up in this in the style of like when you push a wrestler by putting them in a big show with like the the, the main face or something on those lines. Mm. They were like, we're gonna have Godzilla is gonna gas up Jet Jaguar by fighting him in this, then teaming up with him to fight something else. And then at the end, Jet Jaguar becomes normal human size and he walks off into the sunset set to the delightful Jet Jaguar theme song, which they created for the thing. Jet Jaguar was never seen again. Uh, they never <laughs> never did anything further with him and he's kind of become infamous as like a, a miserable jobber uh, in the, the leagues of, uh, of, of kaiju uh, cinema deriving from Toho's like Godzilla stuff specifically. So were you able to be exposed to a lot of this stuff because you grew up over in Europe and or across the world? Because I feel like a lot of this isn't licensed in America. And that's kind of why I'm asking a little curiously about it. So my first exposure to this was actually Power Rangers, which I think is... Which was like American, it, yeah. That's that's very common to pretty much like everyone in English speaking territories. Right, um, right. For, for me, it was um. So growing up in India at the time, I had a very weird childhood as far as like media I consumed was concerned. Because um, as far as like English playing media that you can get for your kids in India in 1990, 1996, 1997 in New Delhi, uh, it's there was a lot of it available. Um, and there were a lot of there was a video store at the the U.S. embassy and stuff like that that my parents used. Um, but um, what was interesting about it was that it had like a time delay on it. So I actually grew up um, in the '90s without the '90s kids elements. I did oh. not, I do not remember the '90s. I remember the '80s. I saw <laughs> He-Man growing up. I saw GI Joe and Thundercats. Oh, so you're forth. an '80s transplant '90s kid. And when I got back to uh, Transformers, and when I got back to the to the UK, and I was trying to interface with other kids, I was like, "Anyone love He-Man? You guys like He-Man? He, he's got a sword." Um, no one was interested in that. They're like, but "Are the you making that the... up? That doesn't sound real." One of the only things that was like current was uh, a couple of VHS tapes of um, uh, Power Rangers. Uh, and I think that might have actually been one of the, the sort of formative elements for me that planted the seed of fascination with monsters in me. Because I remember very vividly seeing oh, yes. Rita, Repul- Rita Repulsa, which Bandora in the original, but Rita Repulsa uh, in Saban's like dubbed creation. Um, uh cackling maniacally with glee as someone like as finster her her servant creates a multiple monsters out of clay (laughs) like designing them himself and then bringing them to life where they descend to the planet and i have i have feel such a deep kinship with uh, rita repulsa as being someone who is delighted by the creation of and then the, the 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 realization of a monster and the designs in tokusatsu are really fascinating because unlike a lot of Western stuff, they didn't abandon practical costumes, but the practical costumes became, they acquired their own weird visual language where they are not interested in realism. They are not interested in necessarily being like overtly like unsettling to the eye, although they often are. It's more sort of spectacular pantomime or like a descendant of something in the vein of like a kabuki theater where this is not meant to be a literal representation of something, but is rather like a series of encoded symbols uh, like you may have a monster that represents um, th- that is born out of something as mundane as a toaster, and then so 
that thing will in in, in you know you might you, some people might approach that and say well I'm going to take a toaster and I'm going to turn its face into like a, a mouth and I'm going to have it breathe fire or something on those lines but a lot of toku designers like Tamatsu Shinohara because they're always working to a humanoid costume because the humanoid costume has mm. to be spectacular it has to be it has to really like hit the hit the eyes and they have nothing in the way and of CGI or so forth they, they would have design to be something somewhat functional too right it's, like yeah exactly that's it has a limitation. to be able to exist in a physical space um, yes. and so people like Tamatsu Shinohara who designed a lot of what we now know as like the Power Rangers monsters for instance um, they go along the lines of something the lines of like okay here's a toaster monster i'm going to have uh, a steel gray human human sort of zentai suit uh, and then I'm going to have like a, a ray of glowing red bars down one side, and then down the other side, there's like a host of like pieces of toast, like a sort of uh, like leaping out of the skin through slots that are <laughs> each emblazoned with grinning faces. And then maybe maybe the character itself has a sort of like um, has like a smooth, sleek, shiny face where the human face should be, but the chest piece has been fashioned to look like a grinning grill and has. Uh, maybe maybe the accoutre, breakfast accoutrements are spilling from its maw or something like that. It's very, um, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's ridiculous, but but it gives rise to, like I said earlier, this is where I think one of the purest places where you see that intersection in monster design between fashion uh, and um, and fashion between character between fun- function form style. It, they're one of the purest examples of style as substance to me. I. I'm going to be very honest, aside from like when I was growing up and watching Power Rangers and then also a few select things that I've watched over the years because I wanted to, like Kamen Rider Drive, uh, a lot of the uh, weirder Kamen Rider one-off films by Keita Amamiya, like Z.O., uh, Shin Kamen Rider, which wasn't by Amamiya, but was one of those, like part of that weird stretch there where they did Z.O., J., all of these. I have not actually watched a huge amount of Toku like one-to-one. I have not sat down and okay. watched all of Ultraman. I have not sat down and watched all of like the sentai series i have seen clips and so forth of specific ones i am more um i'm a, i'm a fake fan and what i like is the costumes so i have consumed well massive... you're a fan of a specific element i'm that's sorry just fine, which is fine i wouldn't books. call you a fake fan <laughs> yeah yeah you're you want no you just want the point, goodies you don't no. need the trimming you just you don't need the fat you just want the, the trim yeah no i know you, what you, i, I know what i like what i like is the thesis on this my guy <laughs> yeah, I would to hear you call, to describe yourself as a fake fan is uh, absolutely the opposite of my understanding of your relationship. Yeah, no, with this you're, stuff, which you're is that I've, I've shit right now. Yeah, I've learned quite a bit, <laughs> um, especially as someone who knew you know virtually nothing. And, and not to say I don't li- dislike Comet Rider, I think the uh, costume designs are really cool. It's just that I don't like, as you said, like I don't need I don't watch a bunch of it because it's it's a not available over here and b it's you know it's kids action entertainment. Yeah, no, no I can just uh, the look at the costume of Kamen Rider and, go, and Sent- certainly cool. Sentai and Ultraman is is aimed at is aimed at children. It's aimed right. at kids. It may in in the way a lot of like uh good kids media does, it may have these grand melodramatic spectacle moments that can translate to or like appeal to an adult audience, but if you're watching it and trying to like it, it's it's it, it's very intentionally designed for children and that's totally fine. Yeah. It's not and it's not the um it's not the bizarre like um broad marketing slurry of right. the mcu where uh they're trying i mean obviously they're still nakedly trying to sell toys and so forth that is right. the driving is, force the same of industry writer, but but i really loathe media that is um 
that it tries to market itself. I, the, the thing I hate the most about a lot of media these days is um, from produced, especially like uh, in, in, in the West by like groups like, like the Disney monolith or whatever, is that it tries to age itself with um, its viewers uh, and market itself right. as like, you do not need to expand beyond the confines of what's here. If you've right. been told that there is great literature out there or great cinema out there, let me tell you what you're consuming right now is, is that let me, let me like flatter you with like, endless series of prestige trailers and so forth that describe what you're watching as like a like a masterpiece we're going to get into these bizarre cultural skirmishes with individuals like scorsese to try and enlist you into this war where you you become like you need to know that what you are consuming is high culture it, it's the it's the greatest stuff it's it's exactly parallel with gilgamesh it's it's the part it's the myth it's it's the mythology it's i i can't stand stuff like that i really really can't uh, I would much rather something was completely honest about itself as something like lowbrow or whatever, because I think that that's not inherently, that doesn't inherently devalue it. Um, if, if it's okay, I'd like to jump off there and just say there's one particular, like, I really hate the use of the term art as an elevator in and of itself. I hate it when hmm. someone says this is art or like sure. this can't be described as art or whatever. I yeah, think, yeah. and this is my yeah. insanely broad definition of art that may, that may shock and, uh, may, and amaze you. Um, I think anything that is created by a human that is not purely functional is art of a sort. And mm. I think it's almost impossible to create something that is purely uh. functional. I think literally anything and everything can, 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 and is, is, is art. Um, but of course that doesn't preclude the vast majority of it from being completely aimless or like bad or like, you know, right. purposeless art, but it's still art. It, it doesn't become, you can't disqualify things in the moment that people start to do that, it's almost inevitably tied to some value judgment that they have made about the subject matter or the creator or the the purpose of the art. Uh, that's, I mean, that, that kind of, I was kind of yeah. just decided to cut yeah. straight to the center of what no, I was no, talking it's about. No, no, like, <laughs> there's, there's, there's plenty of things I don't like the... that I would still absolutely, like, I wouldn't say they yeah. weren't art. That would be Yeah, absurd. no, no. It's... I think it's the tendency to sort of, I wouldn't say... I wouldn't necessarily I think the first one we would probably latch onto now would be like like moralizing it but I do think one way to kind of take the air out of the idea of moralizing it would be uh yeah uh thinking of something in terms of function and uh the value of aesthetic function uh where it doesn't necessarily have a, a didactic or uh a sort of a sort of uh, political aim on it, on its own face. Obviously, politics informs everything, but I feel like like those are sort of they then go downstream, and then that's where you get the moralism as it's as it's sort of prescribed to it. And that's I think I think thinking of things broadly in that way actually could sometimes kind of take the air out of it, and it's. It's a, it's a more valuable way to to sort of quantify it. So I, I really like that description of art. Here's something that's interesting that I've noticed. Um, so like talking about something purely functional, uh, something that has the, like I, I I just tried to define art as something that is not purely functional. And I added to that that I don't think it's possible to create something that hmm. is purely functional. Um, if you consider something as like as a like basic and directly purposefully didactic as a warning label for a piece of machinery, something along those lines, mm -hmm. like um, a small 
piece of yellow text that is designed to catch the eye uh, on a large complex piece of moving, say, military equipment or something that has many interlocking parts is extremely expensive and demands that you treat it with respect because both it and its owner are terrified of being damaged. Um, it may say something like, warning like this side up only or thruster opens here or like uh, insert insert fuel rod or whatever um in art in the last few years it will actually for much longer than that like since some since since the 70s or even earlier there has been in uh, a lot of like science fiction and fantasy but it's, it's especially crystallized now there's a particular kind of um functional rococo that I've noticed, uh, Yoji Shinkawa and like Kojima's work is uh, the work that he does for Kojima and Kojima Games, like a Death Stranding, for instance, are really they're really like some of the prime examples of this, or Neon Genesis Evangelion, where uh, they use things like warning labels and small functional ports and like details on the surface of working machinery has become they they add those things to almost any form that they can they can like acquire. Uh, Death Stranding is littered with examples of this. You have these great monolithic shapes oh, or more yes. complex ones that are just covered in small individual warning labels and instructions. They're yeah. not there because they intricately thought about the operation of the machine. They may have, but they're not there because they want you to understand that they think it's a real machine and they have done all these things. They're there because they they have become an affectation in and of themselves. They've become a decoration. They're Rococo gilding. They're like an additional layer of gold uh, lily in like a, a ceiling rose or, or part of a, like an, or an opera ballad. It's sort of, That's a really well-articulated way. Because like, I'm, I'm thinking of like the... Uh, the um, umbrella device you know that what's her name has in in that game yes it is just so obscenely like technical and weird looking for what is yes. literally an umbrella um it has has as you said has many of those types of little uh words on that as if it was saying some sort of important you know it, like yeah no no it's the, implica- it's the implication like, of complexity the implication the, yeah of the function. printing of a brand and, on it like, a, like a company not even like for the sake of world it's, building or something just for the sake of itself because they because someone like like shinkawa or uh like uh hideaki ano or hideo kojima a lot of these creators are obsessed in in evangelion like the screens filled with like completely functional information like you know within universe like uh, all of these sure charts and bars that go up and down and constantly and all of the warning labels and stuff that dot never... the service the evas they're there because they are part of the decoration they're the same as yeah. like uh fire fire carvings on the surface of a fire monster in a tokusatsu thing or the show does not uh, linger on those things it's, and that is something that is purely well, functional it does, sort of that has become something that is that that is you know is purely ornamental and i think if if it's it's a very like crude example because it's the most obvious it's like a very obvious one to draw whatever but you can't make something purely functional because even if you make something that is aggressively purely functional someone else recontextualizes it or interprets it as something ornamental uh, or uh, or right. becomes obsessed with it um i remember uh i think it, it was definition that um i think um uh jeff gersman on the um uh, on the bombcast did like a million years ago where he described art as something you can be into like, if you can be into it it's probably art and i think you can be uh, don't quote me on that because i don't know if that's exactly what he said but um uh it works as a that's paraphrase even, kind of that's even for him i like the idea of if you can be into it it's something uh and uh, there are as we've discovered via the internet people can be into just about anything in just about any way uh Oh so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It certainly it's, opens it's wild. the floodgates. Yeah, thinking of those those sort of aesthetic ties. Having having worked in a factory, I don't want to say like there's a one to one to what you're saying, but that sort of 
materialist reality aesthetic. I I don't think it was uncommon for people I would talk to when working in the fa- in the factories that like at least one of them would be into anime of some sort. I immediately <laughs> think of those uh, chemical labels, the red, the blue, and the yellow one with a number on each that would denote the the level of lethality or risk associated with it. I forget the name of it. Uh, it's a specific one you look at, uh, as well as when you go through lockout tagout stuff. Uh, I could show you it later, but like old lockout tagout uh, books and guides, the the terrible tiger they would show associated with it. It's like, it's hilarious to just think of what artist was commissioned to do this. And you're like, yep. so I'm doing this for what? Like electrical boxes and shit? <laughs> uh, just awesome. But yeah, in terms of uh, of kind of sort of where, where we'd met and, and spoke to on things, like where you would come from via Tumblr and like a lot of sort of new movements. I think of the new movements now, the, the aesthetic ones. I think of like the crazier ones where it's like tied to a political project. Uh, I think on the left, I see uh, war as aesthetic and like compilations set to music and faux VHS and, and sort of technical filters passed over it. And then on the right, you have like people who are like into traditional Catholicism that basically just want to do pogroms to people. Oh yeah. And like, it's it's weird. It's weird quantifying it because the flattening effect of, of art and aesthetics is like these. Like some of the adherents are like <laughs> they're like transgender people. It's like, dude, these people want to smash your head with a cinder block, dog. But like like art and aesthetics sort of like flow over you, where it's just like uh, some people in comics talk about this, where they were just talking about uh, it, it, like it doesn't if you heard it now, you would just think, well, this person's just like alt right or so and so. But like aesthetically swastikas and shit were like generally punk stuff and almost had a apolitical oh, yeah. connotation for a to long time. A great deal of like punk people. Lemmy and from Motorhead collected Nazi memorabilia and was Lemmy definitely from not a Nazi. He's not a Nazi, but fucking an incredibly eccentric guy. Right. But he's like, you would think of him in today's parlance as basically a war weeb. He absolutely a war weeb. He, he, he was so aesthetically like drawn Mm -hmm. to, to those images. And he came from a generation where, you know, I think his dad probably fought in that war, you know, some shit like that. Yeah, this isn't me like doing apologia. No, like, not at all. Hey, but, like, but it, it is. Hey, it, it would be insane to forget that shit. context. I think. Yeah, there like, are many yeah, means by I which think... a person could become into something, and there yeah. are there are many reasons by which a person could become into something. And the consumption of art is not does not exist in a political void either. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't exist in a contextual yeah. void. Additionally, like you have to. Like it, it, something, something on those. Lines. I mean, it's like one of the. It's something a lot of people have harped on. But like even earlier than the punk stuff or whatever, like much, much earlier, the swastika was like a, a, a cultural symbol that existed prior to the Nazis and was recontextualized by them. Um, uh, and so but then, there are some people now, today who attempt now, to use it in that way. My when we came back from India, 
uh, my parents brought with them mm -hmm. um, a small painting of uh, Ganesha, which was a, a gift from um, some friends of ours there when we left. Uh, and it was placed on the wall of our house. And uh, this Ganesh was done in the traditional style and had a small swastika in the in the Vedic orientation, in the Hindu orientation. Not like um, the, it, when it's when it's turned on its side like that uh, uh, in the Nazi style. That's partly what denotes like a like a Nazi swastika specifically. But um, growing up, I had a lot of of uh, very confused and upset friends who would come into the house, see this painting of Ganesh with like one hand <laughs> up, the palm spread, and a swastika in the middle of it, proudly displayed in the living room. Um, and I had more than a couple of friends ask me uh, nervously uh, exactly like what my parents' deal was, uh, mm. especially since like uh, as diplomats, their occupation was kind of vague and was not obvious to kids. So I, I often had like some friends who were like, uh, what's some... Um, What's, uh, what's with the swastika? And I would have to be like, oh no no, no it's it's fine it's fine it's fine. Um, it's um, it was you a had, gift from. I'm sure you had like a, a script of sorts ready to go. Yeah, I, some I, people I, have I coffee table books. You had, <laughs> you had re religious You're iconography. Like, oh yeah, and here's our here's our living room. Here's uh these lamps. Here's the yep. swastika. Here's uh some more coffee table books. Here's some other stuff. My parents have some have yeah, a very I, interesting I, set of knickknacks and odd items that they have gathered over the years. They spent like much a lot of time in Moscow. They spent um, time on like both sides of the of the Berlin Wall right before and after that happened. Um, they've been they've been around. Um, and uh, one of my favorite objects in the house is a small plaster uh, swan wing, which sat on our mantelpiece for years, uh, and I was never told where it came from. Um, and then, uh, even though I asked a couple of times, my mother was always evasive about it. Uh, and then years later, after I had finished a series of exams, my mother decided to take me with her to a student reunion in Bruges. And when we got to Bruges, because she she at one point did a, a degree abroad in Bruges, uh, when we got to Bruges and we went to the hotel, uh, as we were entering this hotel, she was like, this hotel used to be the student lodging where I lived or whatever. And I looked around and I noticed that the uh, the, bal the balustrade, like uh, going all the way down the, um, the side of the stairs, um, it, uh, it was covered in little plaster swans. Um, and I noticed about halfway up uh, in this hotel in Bruges, one of those swans was missing a plaster wing. Um, and I asked <laughs> mom directly, uh, did you take that plaster ring? And she said, oh yeah, no, a bunch of students did. Whenever we left, we would just snap one off. <laughs> Most of the people here have one too. Uh, and I was, I, wow. I was, that was very entertaining to me because now I look at that thing and I go, oh, well, I mean. There's some handy man. Wants to Somewhere. go back there someday. <laughs> Maybe just I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure if returning it now is a good idea. <laughs> get in there with the glue guy again. I think part of the the counterculture adoption of Nazi stuff in the '60s was an expression of what I think of as um, the Bohemian class was very fucking spoiled, and if you if you read. And I mean, it's it's understandably that they were they were the the economy was fantastic. Everything was really cheap. If if you were in a certain if you were like middle class or above in the United States of America, and you were twenty years old in the sixties, mm. sure, the world was your oyster. And you can get a sense of this from reading any memoir that was written at the time or shortly afterwards by people who lived through it. So memoirs like you know anything by Hunter S. Thompson. Um, the one about uh, the one called Borehole by John Mellon, who was part of one of the three people who experimented with trepanation as a way to get permanently high. 
um, in the 60s. And by that, I mean literally drilling holes in their heads. Yeah. Oh, God. Wait, wait, wait. His name was John Borhole? No, John Mellon. The the book is called Borhole. <laughs> Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I, my my ordinary processing uh, was was great there, but I, for a moment I lived in a wonderful world where the guy, the trepanation guy, was called John Borhol. Uh, yeah, I wish. No, he. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> just yeah, a we all wish. There were there were three of them in this like a weird little cult that uh, decided that they were tired of buying LSD and that they figured they thought at the time that LSD caused oxygenation in the the. Um, the blood around the brain and that that was what had the psychedelic effect. This is completely wrong. But at the time we hadn't really figured out how psychedelics work. It was all very underground shit. So they figured if they just drilled an air hole in their actual skull, they would be high all the time permanently. Oh man. Trepanation. Um, this did not turn out to be the case, but uh, the one of them was a woman. Her name is, Natalie Fielding, something like that. She actually ran for council member of somewhere um, on a platform of trepanation uh, for the national health. And her son, she was actually a peer. I can't remember what level of peer, uh, but her son is a lord and he's currently in the House of Lords and he's like a hyper conservative Tory. Um <laughs> And I think she's so he's a member of the House of Lords. Yes, she's she's still around and alive. Um, but she created an art film called Heartbeat in the Brain, uh, where she used a dental drill to make her trepanation hole. Um, like she actually filmed the whole thing and, and made a film out of it. So people at that point could do that kind of thing. If you had 20 bucks, you could survive for six months in India or wherever you wanted to go just being a fucking hippie. There was no AIDS. The drugs were really good. It was very unusual for you to get a bad batch of literally anything. Uh, we had no research chemicals polluting the market. Everything was dirt cheap. There were no travel restrictions. It was extremely easy to falsify any sort of documentation that you wanted. And birth control had just come out. So you could fuck constantly and never get anything worse than like syphilis or gonorrhea, which were at the time, you know, completely treatable. There weren't any new strains that were untreatable and we had all of the medical technology that required it. So as a result, I mean, you think about people who grew up in this, this world um, going on just unbelievable adventures. But if you read their philosophy and the kind of shit that they were doing, it was completely divorced from the reality that we live in now. It was so bad and so weird and so different from anything that millennials or Zoomers will ever experience that my own mother has apologized to me. She's like, I'm so sorry that the fucking pro protesting that we did in the 60s and all of this work that we thought we were doing on the social structure turned out to be useless. I mean, everything is so much worse now than it was. So I think that the only thing that we have to compare it to is like ironic racism on the Internet at the turn of the last century. And if you were there, like if you're old enough that you were actually there, you know that it really and truly was ironic for many years. And so the, the people who were, you know, doing Nazi stuff and, and saying racial slurs and stuff like that, it, it was genuinely a joke. And that joke came from a place of extreme privilege and total, total blindness to how that kind of shit was real. Um, 
you know, it was like a child picking up a gun and playing with it. So, and many, many of those people grew out of it, you know? Exactly. The, well, the good ones did, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it did not turn into genuine racism until a few years later because people started noticing, oh, hey, well, I can, you know, I can uh, take control of the narrative here and, and keep pushing it and pushing it. Well, that kind of culture of that, that sort of just stupid, naive uh, innocence and joking around, that's the kind of, that's why, you know, Lemmy has a, a swastika on some of his stuff or why, why the Iron Cross became a fashion uh, symbol. And if you ask somebody like that at the time, like, hey, man, the Nazis were pretty bad news. Are you sure you want to wear this? They'd be like, fuck the Nazis. We are, we're stripping power from this symbol by using it in this way. Um, and uh, God, this, it, it makes me so mad reading all these memoirs and, and, and watching documentaries and stuff about it. Cause they, they were so fucking spoiled. So spoiled. <laughs> oh man. I, so yeah, my, the one anecdote I have that I can relate to this is, um, my cousin worked for, uh, the recently deceased guru Ram Das, who was a white dude who worked with uh, Timothy Leary and was uh, one of the guys who code, like was one of the first people to be taken acid. And in the little time I got to spend, I, I went to his wedding that was, that was in Hawaii there on Ram Dass's um, property. Everyone I met there was, was very old, you know, older and it had come from that generation was largely white, clearly wealthy and utterly unconcerned with the state of the world. And, and seemingly in a place where they thought things were okay. And it was fascinating. It was fascinating to, to, to like see all these people and, and just kind of feel like I was both younger and very much smarter than them. Um, that's, yeah, it was very much like I could get the sense of what you're describing where it's like, oh, these people have never had it tough. I, I, they, they I literally mean, like, they're just, it's like, a, it's like, it's like, a, a, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've literally sat with a bunch of white people and done a two hour kirtan and it felt weird. I mean, uh, I think I think it also just depends on, you know, who was having the conversation at the time, because one sort of one sort of general thing is that like a lot of a lot of like the beats and shit did also come from inherited wealth, yep. uh, which doesn't get discussed a lot. So in terms of like in terms of class, like your ability to fuck off and drill a hole into your head and uh, I don't know. uh get fucked up in Mexico, put a bottle on top of your wife's head and William tell her face off. Uh, oftentimes, if you came from a certain uh, financial background, uh, you were more likely to get sorted into that grouping versus others. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't moralize it necessarily. It does, it does, it does seem to be, uh, in terms of the 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 sort of, uh, I think if you lack like an awareness, about I always it. think of if you lack an yeah, awareness about, yeah. about about what has happened to you, uh, yep. and you come to perceive yourself as having uh, like solely risen risen to this position off the sweat of your own brow and your own accomplishments, or that you are somehow insulated by some other exceptional quality yeah. that you are like. I mean, that's where you like get a lot of these individuals who or think of themselves as messianic or or, or having like acquired unique enlightenment if you don't 
pay attention to where the support structures are around you. You believe them to be invisible. You believe yourself truly to be elevated and floating in the air unsupported. That's when it begins to curdle into poison and you're, you turn into like a, a, a one of the worst kinds of people, I think. Um, and I mean, like, like, like I was saying earlier, like I've, I've only been able to pursue a lot of my own career uh, because I've been very lucky to never have to deal with things, like I said, like housing security or uh, be obligated to like, I, I have to be conscious of that, like uh, I, that that support was part of what allowed me to. I'm not going to like completely eliminate my own effort from the equation, but like uh, it's it's a huge part of it. And if I ignore it, then I end up like like a Lemmy or whatever. Uh, and, and that's. Well, I don't, I don't I don't think Lemmy is inherently bad. I think I think it was like Eliza was saying. It was well, more, I was just using it because I, he was he was the one we were talking about right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I think you would end but, up just but, like someone who was. You know, like, I mean, like Elon Musk, for Christ's sakes, like someone. Well, I think the thing with Musk is he knows, but he's lying about it. I think it's. uh, I mean, I think a lot of the people in in the position you're describing on some level would know and are lying about it. Yeah. If only Uh, to themselves. I I think. Yeah, absolutely. To themselves. (laughs) Sort of aesthetic. Aesthetic attachment is is one of those weird things where it is kind of. I only think of demoralizing now insofar as as social media goes, because part of that is sort of having bits of the human uh, connections that form things naturally. I mean, you could get into a deeply philosophical argument where actually algorithms are a natural outcome because human hands produced it. But now algorithm algorithmic creation is soon going to apply to digital programming, which means digital things will be creating things like in a self-propelling way. Which there will be stuff that has been made without the touch of human hands, is what you're saying. Well, well, yes, and processes to make things that will not have human editorial, right? Or at least to the extent where individual mechanisms are clearly outlined because of uh, the the needs of process will necessitate process being handled at such a level that uh, the computational work being put into it uh, will be something that a massive group of people would have to undertake versus the motivation for doing machine learning, which is to be able to do something that would take hundreds, maybe thousands of people to do it. Uh, Bitcoin, uh, for for an awful example. Uh, so I don't like that applying to to uh, aesthetic process as it relates to engagement, uh, because it, it, the, the, that left and right paradigm I had mentioned. You know, you have your trad cats on one side, you have your war your war weebs and your sad war weebs and your <laughs> doomer weebs uh, of many stripes. Uh, you know, my heart goes out to, you know, quite a few of those people because like it feels as though the engagement algorithm sort of put you into that uh, sorting hat. Once again, you know, <laughs> they sort of dole you out. Here's the box you go into. And like that, that's, if I ever think of moralism as it relates to that, it's because like, uh, I feel like so much 
of class as it relates to work sort of is why I'm trying to be more charitable in, in terms of outcomes for people. Like a lot of people don't get a hand in in the sort of person they get to be. Like they don't get to like choose, not because uh, they are never culpable, but like that molding process, those neuron grooves that say, I'm going to scream a bunch of slurs and act like a fucking misanthropic piece of shit because that that was the 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 constant reified shit that went into the molding of me mm. and like it's i'm i'm a man i i see a lot of young people especially their sense of hopelessness as it as it sort of relates to that and the the aesthetic uh things that kind of land on their laps and they sort of have that same moment. Uh, but then so much of it involves uh, sort of induced depression, not just from uh, being alienated in their own lives, but then like the the works produced from it. And it's just this constant uh, reification process the, with the like that loop, like this. It, that, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. just someone someone is putting a boot on your head I mean, and it's an M60 loaded with anadonia yeah, and th- they're blasting your face off. A thing I've been concerned with, you know, as someone who literally does struggle with and is medicated for depression is the online discussion of depression exacerbating it. The well um, in ways that are poisoned. almost uncontrollable, right? In ways that are just that that do create a feedback loop. It's something I started to notice, oh god, maybe like six or seven years ago. And it's one of the reasons I steer clear of a lot of social media convos these days. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not, it's just not productive or helpful in any way. It's wallowing and it becomes a personality. Um, it, I, I, there is this thing with the online stuff where you get into your echo chamber and you're like, well, I, you know, it's ableist to expect me to do anything. So I'm not going to do anything. And I will validate my not doing anything by calling everyone who says that I should go outside ableist. It's really fucking bad. It's, it's, it is, it's incel level self-sabotage. It, yeah, it's a logic trap. It's like, there's no, it's a, it's a self-made prison. It is. It, yeah. it is exactly the same shit as the incels just going around and around on their forums going, well, right. I'm ugly because I'm, five eight instead of six foot and my chin is slightly recessed and i'll the lottery was already rolled and i i lost yes everything is run by control is the sentiment this is women's fault for some reason except it's it's the the incel stuff is instead of women it's this is neurotypical yes Yes. yeah or just society you know and um the the whole the this episode's going to come out months after this has already passed, but the stupid Hermione discourse that's been oh, going on for I don't even who yeah somebody got mad and it turned into a big ableism discourse that Hermione Granger was called a know-it-all and annoying <laughs> oh, God. Um, and this was ableist because everybody has decided that Hermione is autistic oh, and fucking... calling autistic people annoying is ableist oh. as an annoying autistic person let me just say 
Uh, nothing annoys me more than other fucking autistic people. And it is one of the things that has helped me develop as a person is noticing that when I hang out with other friends of mine who I really get along with in terms of like brain mirroring, a lot of the shit they do annoys the crap mm. out of me. You know, like the fidgeting and the inability to control the tone of your voice or like not the tone, but the the, the volume of the voice and, you know, not being able to take a social hint and stuff like that. And then I go home and I think to myself, man, I got to work on my shit. And it's not me hating myself. It's not a value judgment. I'm not saying, oh, I'm a worse person because I'm autistic and I'm annoying. It, there's nothing like wrong with being annoying. It's just something that affects the way that you move through the world and you can uh, work on it or you don't, you know, but I, I, this stuff really fucking worries me. I look at young people who are like trapped in this little tumbler box of, I, I can't do anything cause I'm disabled and expecting me to do anything, uh, or, or hoping for me to do anything is ableism. Um, it really worries me. It really does. It, yeah, and that's the thing. What the the problem is uh, not, not to to fully tack on this because I I try to think of it as it relates to aesthetic, but I guess it would be important to acknowledge that because there are visual cues and indicators. I won't go full anthropology, but you know, you got your P crew, you got your you got your Steven Universe or various other. A prestige animated program for children that is watched by uh, nineteen to uh, oh, forty-four year old uh, yeah. people, uh, <laughs> which whatever. Uh, and and the thing is, like, there are tendencies that sort of go full circle, where you actually end up saying deeply ableist or like bigoted things uh sort of on the road to then justifying like x amount of reasons for being unable to do this or that mm. uh, by by having x amount of markers uh, through anecdotal evidence or or solely working off of lived experience where that's you cannot map that to to thousands or millions of people. Try, 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 you know, try coming up with a general consensus of the trans community, the black community. Try coming uh, up with the a general consensus folks. on anything. Right. Try coming up with a general consensus on anything. Like I follow left politics and the worst thing you can do if you're into left politics is uh listen to the people that talk about left politics or the people that talk about theory in left politics. It's, it's like, if you had any of you ever seen uh, Lars von Trier's antichrist? No. Oh, a long, it's a very long time ago. I've seen the part hey, where Jake, the fox says chaos reigns. Yeah. No other parts from, yep. from Lars von Trier's antichrist. <laughs> Involving uh, hammers and nails. Yeah. And, uh, oh, I'm aware of that stuff. Anyway, but but uh, Christ on a cracker. It's, yeah, it's it's a lot of torture. <laughs> you know, there's this. It, 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 it's the it's the part also that's that's kind of why I go to art is that you know any world would be better than this one this one we're in, uh, but but you know. That in itself could be a trap. We're we're fucking stuck with this shithole. 
and it's actually not that bad. Uh, and it life is the best game in town. We all would like to believe we know what comes after this. And some people, you know, have a firm idea that they know. Right. Or uh, that there is nothing. Or that there is definitely fucking something. And you fucked up if you're not trying to get towards that. Um, it, it, what's, what dismays me so much is, like, the... Where there's like a certain amount of culpability, but then some of it is also just like you you look at a bunch of these people for five minutes and you're like, how many of these decisions have they coherently made of their own volition mm. where they weren't sold a fucking line? Because we all get sold a line. Uh, it, it informs who we are. It's just sure. how much of it has been sold to you. I mean, one thing I'm always conscious of is that a lot of these people are, you know, roughly 10 years behind the average age of of all of us as a co-host cohort. And Mm -hmm. that, to me, marks a almost a generational um, divide in people that can remember before the Internet. Like, and even as a child, I don't know. A lot of the people I'm I'm thinking of are actually our age. Okay, that's fair. That's actually pretty fair. You know, because that thing recently where... um, the self the self determined autistic therapist got mad at August for making a joke about ADHD people being oh, like terminated. I did see that. Hell yes, yeah. that was really I funny. Saw that. Yeah, that well, was that really funny. Well, that dude was thirty six fucking years okay, old. Okay, yeah, no, you make a great point there. Yeah, it's like when I, <laughs> I I see well, no. young people, but there's certainly people our age in this in this in this group for sure. For I yeah, I mean sure everyone can be uh everyone can you know, mistreat or, or malign or like sort of use language as a cover. I'm going to think that's more likely the older a person is. I'm going to think like, yo, like, who are you trying to get one over on? Who are you trying to fucking trick here? Mm -hmm. Mm. Like, cause I'm sorry. There's, there's, there's a, there's a skepticism. I just get at that point because in your 30s, uh, the die has sort of been cast. There's, it's very difficult to make significant changes to oneself after a certain amount of, of, of time put in on this world. And I don't know. But yeah. I mean, unless you're mean, uh, you can learn to eat raw think- cheese. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <sighs> well, you're, you're a baby on this podcast anyway. It's true. Gosh. Um... I want to say, uh, let's see here. Uh, we want to start uh, wrapping things up, folks. I mean, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll cut in if we got. I mean, we this is editable. We've we've we're about at two hours right now. Um, okay. You know, Francine, if there's anything you want to still talk about, we can we can certainly. I'll check in with everyone, but but we could yeah, keep we going if everyone's cool with it. Nothing um, that I can think of um, specifically. Uh, right. I, I guess like. Um, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, I think, I, interestingly enough, despite being terrified of the prospect of trying to summarize, like I, when, when, when I was thinking about going on this podcast to begin with, I was, um, uh, I was probably incorrectly like thinking about basically trying to make an effort to summarize my entire self. Um, but uh, I don't think that's no, first yeah. of all, it's not necessary. It's not what this is. You just is. need to bring um, an essence of yourself. A but little bit. Um, I'm yeah, actually, I'm actually pretty, say. pretty pleased with having like brought like two or three. Several, you know, several like major points that have been rolling around my head for a long time. 
that I've wanted to express on a platform like this, and I got my shot at doing those, so I'm very That's happy awesome. about that. That's oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Well, um, I guess this is a part where we can we can do for guests specifically, where it's just the end of the podcast. Do you want to plug yourself a little bit, Francine? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, so. Um, uh, my name is uh, Francine, uh, but on most platforms, uh, I'm, I'm adv- identified as uh, Witness the Absurd, which is my sort of uh, nom de plume, I guess, my artist's moniker. Uh, you can find me at uh, uh, my art station, uh, art station slash Witness the Absurd, at my Twitter, which is at Person Faces, which is where I am most readily contacted. Or you can email me directly at witnesstheabsurd at gmail.com. I'm always happy to talk business. Um, I... Uh, uh, hold a second. I've got to cough. I'm always happy Where's to talk. That cough? Business. Yep. No, she no, there's a perfect, perfect mute. I've got that cough button. Um, I'm always happy to talk business Man. with people uh, or just to talk about anything. I also have a Patreon at um, uh, Patreon for slash witness the absurd, uh, where you can see um, uh, time-lapse recordings of my work. Uh, it's my work before it's posted elsewhere and also get the chance to vote and tell me, what to paint next, uh, if that's if that's what you're into. Um, I'm, I'm very excited for the next year or so. Uh, things are um, some things are moving in certain places, and uh, I'll be very excited to talk about some future projects when I can. But for the moment, uh, I'm afraid there's nothing else I can directly plug uh, aside from myself. So there you go. Excellent. I would like to recount my favorite interaction with Francine on Ooh. the internet. Yes, oh, absolutely. <laughs> We, yeah. We've been mutuals for a long time. Um, I think, it's a, like Francine said, this is the first uh, like direct discussion we've had with each other on a voice chat. But yeah, yeah. We, we've, been, we've been mutuals on Twitter and Tumblr forever. Mm-hmm. But uh, many years ago, I think it was like 2015, something like that, the Environmental Protection Agency on Earth Day came up with this absolutely harebrained scheme to invent a mascot to encourage recycling. Oh, I, yeah, I think <laughs> I remember this now. Go on. And, and Holy shit. Absolutely f- just phenomenally badly designed. Looked like he was from like 1995. Mascot of a recycling receptacle, and his name was Dunk. <laughs> oh my God. And, I, you know, a lot of people kind of pass this around. We're like, ha, that's pretty funny. For some reason, Francine and I thought this was absolutely the wildest and best oh, shit we had ever seen for i like just google hours. image searched dunk dunk is um, <laughs> exceptional oh my god we went <laughs> shit on this thing for probably a day and a half and you know i just i made a bunch of dunk memes like you know god i i can't even remember the the nomenclature but i ripped off the ron paul funeral city thing you know it's like yep dunk funeral city 500 <laughs> billion dead you know, uh, yeah i, I, I be be cold be step. sweet crude be part of my father father's funeral city on that note i, I wish i knew who wrote ron paul funeral city because I, I genuinely think it's it's one of my favorite pieces of poetry that's ever been written <laughs> it's so good i i know i have like a friend of a friend so i sort of knew a little bit about who came up with that and they're actually in the fashion industry um, speaking of uh, connections between monstrousness and yeah. fashion, but yeah, they they were like a serious fashion person. I figured, I figured yeah. as much. It certainly always had that. My friend um, uh, Tommy, uh, uh, who I talk with a, a great deal about this, we have both have an, a, a, like an a, we both have a, a great deal of affection for a very specific kind of like um, uh, sort of strange like um, 
postmodern magic realist surreality sort mm -hmm. of flavor that uh, something like a Ron Paul Funeral City brings where it's using mm -hmm. pieces. I mean, SCP Foundation, uh, it's, it's a big mixed bag. There's a lot of good and mm -hmm. garbage stuff in there, but they get they hit some of those notes sometimes. There's something about right. the, the the idea of the, the spectacle of grand industrial like devastation on like an, an eschatological scale or whatever mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that is also codified in a religious way. There's something about that that's very compelling. And I saw yeah. some of that in Dunk. Um, yeah, I saw exactly. that that beauty both, in Dunk. Really the incarnation, a living, a living receptacle for what must be destroyed uh, when yes. he fills his own body with it. Uh, it's it's truly exceptional. And I, I think that by abandoning Dunk, the um, apparently uh, he wasn't it wasn't the EPA. It was the the NSA. Um, oh my god, yes, I forgot that part. That which I think so was a key NSA. element of this, was that it was the fucking NSA uh, who created this guy, who just, who brought him forth uh, uh, raw and skinless mewling into oh. the world, like tumbling out of whatever orifice the NSA has among many, uh, just to sort of like flail in front of us uh, one of one of, one of of God's like, um, one of God's little, little jokes uh, and dunk Dunk has a special place in my heart. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I remember, I remember our, our brief uh, uh, fixation on Dunk, and mm -hmm. looking at him again brought it all back because, yeah. God, there's a particular, there's a kind of rictus to the corner of his grin, yeah. where yeah. like um, it, it's it's akin to Nicholson's Joker is probably the closest way to describe it. But like there's, a, there's mm -hmm. the way that the uh, the mouth is pinched at the corners, but in a manner that's completely unnatural or detached from any kind of actual musculature involved in smiling. Uh, mm -hmm. It's as though it's been like held open. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, he's he's unheimlich. He's, he's not un unheimlich is exactly it's the perfect description. Yeah. And the fact that he comes from the NSA elevates it so mm. much because what is this is it a fucking psyop you know why yeah why is the nsa interacting with earth day at all how did the nsa i like, mean you know in terms of their of budgets Doug? right they were like, like we need we need a few we need like a few million to just sort of black bag a bunch of people so okay let's try to justify this within the budget uh hire an artist to make a fucking tim and eric <laughs> cgi mm -hmm. Of a dude, and then uh, of a, of a all right. living recycling bin. Yeah. Oh god, his face comes outward. Yeah, There's yeah. no reason for it. He could just be a flat face, as opposed to like this textured outward. Like, what is this it in the shape of? It's um, fuck. It, it's it's in it's in the manner of like um uh if if you consider for instance like uh, there's a direct line I think between Dunk and uh, classical uh Greek theater uh like Hellenic theater in the in the of original course. in the original style where of course you had like a select number of mosques similar to like a No or Kabuki style theater mm. where you have a select number of icons that re re represent particular emotions or classical archetypes and I think Dunk is probably the closest thing that we have to that in a modern sense. So there's nothing else really compares to to Dunk or, or to things like Dunk, that particular kind of rictus grin that emerges from the surface of any given inanimate object to denote sentience, to denote an ability to 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 speak to communicate to make itself known. And of course the, the perfect the perfect completion of Dunk as a conceit that Dunk no longer exists, that Dunk was himself dunked and abandoned and destroyed, <laughs> and thus was himself a spectacular waste of money, energy, uh, everything. He, he embodies waste uh, in more ways than one, and that mm -hmm. made him poetically perfect. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was, I, I always remember this when we were we were posting dunk you know for those those few days and i was just cranking out dunk memes and in one of them you replied and you said i love it when you get experimental and i felt so seen because no one else was taking this seriously as like <laughs> postmodern commentary hell yeah except francine francine yeah. was the only one who yeah. saw me saw what i was doing and appreciated it you know and it's not that i take it seriously because i don't everything is art everything is but art exactly yeah. exactly this this absurdism needs to be respected appreciate and approach everything on its own merits that's that's how i try and uh, that's how i try it and like live live my my media consumption uh, or whatever it is that i'm involving myself with like uh, you don't have to treating everything as art does not necessitate approaching everything with the assumption that it sits like in the highest pantheon possible and you don't have to interpret things that way you have no. to dispose of the pantheon altogether you have to simply approach something on its own merits what did this try and do like engage with it sin sincerely and seriously try and like uh and and like meet it meet it halfway and like understand it. i have a horrible habit of meeting anything that i like like uh halfway including things that are, this is obviously doesn't apply to to uh, eliza's dunk memes but um if something if something has something in it that i like I will crawl through like barbed wire to find other things about it that I like and to, to love it on its own terms, no matter how horrible and malformed it may be otherwise. And as a result, there are many like, um, I mean, I think a, a part of that is is like, that's part of what a lot of people's love for some of the weirder uh, like tokusatsu stuff, for instance, is, is because like, this thing is completely bizarre or it, it like mm -hmm. uh, it's it's so weird and idiosyncratic mm -hmm. or whatever, but you, you make the effort to love it anyway because, mm -hmm. because there's something in it that's so compelling that you can't find anywhere mm -hmm. i there's think if there's any like one thing i hadn't said on the podcast that i want to say it's that um i when i was younger i truly like i i, I went along with like um uh, people's sort of uh group distaste for figure for like auteur figures i guess uh like especially in, in the games industry like uh, figures like um like uh the like suda 51 like goichi suda or um uh uh, Hideo Kojima mm -hmm. or some or like or Tetsuya Nomura whose work I think like really um, uh, really deserves better evaluation uh, as time goes on um, I, I went along with that because I, I knew it was the de rigueur thing to be like there's some good things about their work but man these guys need an editor and certainly while having an editor can be like a delightful thing like it certainly it can improve the quality of, of, of work and you should pay attention to what your editor is saying um, I think I would rather consume a million more like hugely lopsided, bizarre passion projects from people, uh, especially when they're when they are given enormous amounts of money by some corporation they have hoodwinked into creating something like uh, like a, 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 a like a Killer Seven or a Metal Gear or something on those lines. Mm -hmm. I want that more than anything, rather than something that is by objective standards like this is coherently built and good and it has the right amount of character development and balance and it resolves correctly and it is it is this i i'm so much more interested in weird lopsided idiosyncratic works by people who are just indulging their own like pursuits and that's that's what i would like to create some days someday myself is something that is completely and totally warped it towards the specific niche that i want <laughs> yeah. so that's that's the only other thing i, I mean, wanted to say uh i, I think, think that's a i think that's a, a perfect way to 
to, yeah, to, that's to, the thing. to, to end it on. Like that is, yeah. you know, you kind of just define so where you want to end up as a, as an I mean, artist. Thank you also yeah, to Eliza yeah, yeah. for remembering well, that interaction because uh, I've, <laughs> I've, I have such a profound respect for you as, as I do for everyone else on this podcast. And it, uh, it means a lot to me to know that my appreciation uh-huh. for, for, uh, for dunk uh and for the dunking of dunk uh was, oh, yeah. was I'm, not, I'm not gonna forget let a it never be said like that yeah. in a hurry you mm, know yeah. I, I remember instances where people actually know what the fuck i'm talking about because it's so fucking rare it's the best yeah let yeah. it never be someday, said dunk did not bring anyone together someday yeah, he'll dunk uh, himself and that... he'll just sort of turn inside out and disappear uh it'll be beautiful <laughs> Incredible. I, I can see it in my mind's eye all right, yeah, to, to wrap it, I would say that, uh, yeah, at, at the end of the day, I think when you get that that tangible love, even if you're very fixated on this specific image, the, that of the monster, uh, the thing is, you know, when you have that disproportionate level of love, more often than not, you're, you're, you're not going to necessarily give everyone what they want, but uh, you will give X amount of people in the world that need it, what they need exactly and that's that's where you want to be it's it's difficult and it's you know it's it's not without some of its drawbacks but at the end of the day you're one of the few people that can do what you do and it's you know it's a pleasure to have you as a a a very good friend thank Uh, you love you buddy that said love you love you too michelle (laughs) seriously like all of you are are longtime friends of mine and i i'm so glad that we're here and doing a podcast together hey thanks thanks no worries all right yeah and as always uh this has been working on it wait i'm michelle perez wait oh wait one more One, one more thing what? Every time I listen to this podcast, uh, I just I just want this to be shouted out on the podcast itself. My favorite part, one of my favorite parts of the whole podcast, is the fact that the outro music ends right as a vocal begins. So there's like a <laughs> tiny little uh, right there at the very end of the thing. And I'm imploring everyone who, who listens to this to listen to the very end and hear that bit because all, it's great. All credit, I, all credit to love... Jay Dilla, uh, and it must be noted here from which we derive our name, his track working on it, and the sample therein of people saying working on it. Um, oh wait. Yeah. One other thing, I I've forgot. A, I've I did the podcast. I did the noises. art for this podcast. Yeah, you should sure <laughs> yeah, have mentioned anywhere, Inside but I, I did the logo for this podcast. Francine uh, whipped up our logo real quick on a on a whim when we were very early in the development of this podcast. That's right, and it's it's uh, it's been great. Okay, that, yeah, that truly is everything good. I have I have to say now. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. We got the pink. You got the orb. Uh, yeah, as always, I'm Michelle Perez. Uh, my buddy Jake, my buddy Ruben, uh, my buddy Francine, my buddy Eliza Gager. This has been working on it. Uh, and let's hear that weird. Uh.